0: That's your decision now, don't
1: I? This is the Black Rifle Coffee Podcast.
2: For decades, buying a silencer has been difficult. But in 2005, Silencer Central set out to simplify the suppressor buying process. So whether you're planning your next hunt or putting together a range day, you'll enjoy every shot you take with Silencer Central. Straight to your front door. It's good to have you out. Yeah, good to be here, man. This
3: is crazy. This is crazy. Like y'all's whole setup out here. Isn't it's not his first time here.
0: Yeah, it's,
4: it's crazy. It's Wild. It's uh,
3: I, my favorite part of the. You, you give him the tour. Yeah. You come in and you're like, you know, there's gun safes everywhere. There's dogs running all over the place. There's like, literally, I walk out of your office and a guy tries to stab me. <laughs> he literally tried to stab me an I met him 37
0: seconds before, and he's already tried to stab me. So it's it's, right. it's really everything that I thought it would be. It's everything and more. Yeah, and you haven't really seen the entire thing because uh, we had. Um, uh, this guy here yesterday, Danny Duncan, who's got this really big YouTube channel, super cool guy. And he was walking into my office. He's like, are those guns? I was like, yeah, those are guns. Welcome to Black Rifle. He's like, but it's just like two pistols in a shoebox. Like, yeah, I just got them back from my gunsmith. And that's like, it, was, it wasn't It was a shoebox. It was an ammunition right. box. And I was like, I'm grabbing them on my way out. And he's like, this place is kind of crazy it's different like it's a different different. it's a different it's a different spot yeah i would venture
3: a guess that you would have a difficult time finding another public company uh, in the united states with the black rifle vibe here at the office
0: and i mean that is the greatest compliment that you could possibly get i don't think you could i i think well and i always ride i always ride that line right where as a public company everybody thinks that that it's, everything changes and you can't do anything, you can't mm-hmm. say anything, you can't be any, you know, you can't be controversial, you can't do this, you can't do that. And I'm like, um, not necessarily, mm-hmm. I, you know, it, it, we're living in the human condition, which is like we have gray matter and, you know, we we walk around and we, we eat and we shit and we do all of these things. Like being human is also making mistakes and doing things that are just inherently human. Mm-hmm. So if people think now that you're a public company that that all changes and you're just like these these robots walking the hallway, they're just Mm. completely false. I think it's also based on when people become public, the, the psychology of a public CEO is different. They're just trying not to fuck things up because they're really risk adverse. They're not typically entrepreneurs. They just need to, like, it's a lot like autopilot. When the when the pilot steps out, they press autopilot, they go back, they, you know, hit whatever the pilots do, I guess, maybe, like, hit on flight attendants or whatever they're doing <laughs> while they're up in the air at 30,000 feet. <laughs> but that's a lot what they're doing. They're just, like, they're running the ship. Most companies are growing maybe a few percentages a year. Mm-hmm. Um, their goals are, are are essentially don't fuck things up. Mm-hmm. That's when you bring in that that CEO. I'm still here, so I still fuck all kinds of stuff up. <laughs>
3: well, it, it would be dangerous for Black Rifle becoming a public company to change what's in your DNA. It's the authentic, authenticity right. behind the brand that resonates with people. I just think in life in general, whether it's running a company or whether you're uh, somebody who decides you're going to run for, for a public office um, and you try to round the edges down – sand the edges down a little bit, smooth things out a Mm -hmm. little bit. We're going to be more palatable for public consumption. And you lose that authenticity because you're underestimating that the overwhelming majority of people in the world actually don't care if you disagree. They don't care. Like, you could disagree on things Mm -hmm. and still think that that's a good person or that's a Mm -hmm. person that I could vote for, even. You respect more if they're willing to stand... Up for something, even if you disagree with them, right. and people completely forget that when they get in positions of power or they're in the public eye. And from a company perspective, um, Black Rifle's brand ticks some people off. <laughs> yeah. Okay, and and if you guys became a public company and were like, well, let's not make anybody mad anymore, right? Well, you're going to alienate the people that that love what you stand mm. for and being milk toast is the worst possible thing that you can be in life in general. If somebody hates what you stand for, there's a good chance somebody on the other side is going to actually love what you stand for. And if we're thinking about from a company perspective and how can we make money, is somebody going to buy something they're just like, eh, that's okay. okay. Or are they going to buy something that they freaking love? They're they're gonna subscribe to your coffee subscription because they freaking love what you stand for and love your coffee. Not that they're just okay about it. You round those edges down, you're gonna lose what made it special to begin with.
0: Yeah, I think I think a lot of companies do that though because they one they don't have a mission, right? So they don't have a mission. Mm -hmm. You know, we've got a mission. We've got an authentic mission that we're directly steering towards all the time. And to be competitive in this landscape of products where everything is equal in the context of plus or minus, you know, I prefer our coffee based on my palate. And obviously, you know, I'm I'm the the guy or one of the guys that continues to roast and develop the product. I prefer that taste. But plus or minus everybody in the category is like Mm -hmm. 10% efficiency as far as like good quality product and where you have to win is you have to say well we have a, a great product do we have a great company and a purpose mm-hmm. and to be competitive i think today in in the, in the business landscape it's not good enough just to to be a good product you have to be a great product mm-hmm. and then you have to have a great company you have to be able to resonate with your mm-hmm. with your customer base in an authentic way and for us you know 50 plus percent of the company is veteran mm-hmm. veteran veteran family members and did it start out like that <sighs> No, it started in my garage, just trying to pay my mortgage.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: And e- contrary to maybe the, the the conspiracy theorists out there that are like, this was a CIA, you know, like thing. I was like, no, man. I uh, uh, I left the CIA. Like, I was fired from the CIA. Actually, you have like... both
4: been there. It'd be the best <laughs> op
0: they ever ran. If that's yeah. a, the... it, it even like going back further, where it's like I've heard it all. And and every now and again, and honestly, we got kind of like this dossier of stuff where we look at every month. And it's like, these are the biggest bullshit things or whatever that and we get to laugh about them, which is very similar to, we used to have this file with my old office where people had sent in the resumes when they were applying to come to work for this, this company. I don't know if it actually exists anymore, but they used to be a subcontractor for the agency called MVM. And we have this file and there's a, there's a, the, if the guy listens to this, which he might, because I just ran into him a couple months ago, um, this stump was his call sign. So if you're, if you're hearing this, like, please correct me if I'm wrong, but we had this file and it was called like the file of Woe. And it was all the resumes of the dudes that were like sending in, like, I'm willing to do wet work or like their headshots, (laughs) or like I basically (laughs) killed like thousands of people in Call of Duty and I'm qualified. It's like, it was awesome. Like it was like the coolest thing ever we could, we could, we could see. Cause we would laugh and laugh and laugh. Like this person is applying for a job here and they think a headshot with them, like with a pistol is going to, that's going to get you the job.
3: There's a moment where you're like, what have I created here that someone
0: would think that
3: like, what what vibe am I giving off right now that would lead someone to, to think that?
4: That's pretty
0: good. And, uh, so we have this kind of like file of woe where every now and again, like they'll circulate it around and they'll be like, this is what's being said. And you're like, okay. You know, uh, that, that I started it or whatever. I started my garage, you know, back in the day. And it's like, man, like my wife and I were living in a shitty little house here in salt Lake. You know, I was trying to figure out my life and I love coffee. So it's pretty easy. My wife had a coffee shop in Denver. I had, Mm -hmm roasting experience and the goal originally was can we just start roasting coffee and then eventually get to the point where like i could open up a pretty boutique gun store you know range Mm -hmm. slash coffee shop where we could sell bougie pistols because that's what i'm into like no offense everybody. It's like oh man i don't know why you like those bougie pistols like because they're epic as shit like when you get <laughs> <laughs> when you get an sti that's you know shout out to sti or when you get an sti with a you know a comp and you know a sub one pound trigger that you're running like split times that are you know Point ones off the, off your timer, there, there ain't nothing better. So for me, like I, I like race guns. Like I love race guns and I've got like race Glocks and race STIs. And like, I love race guns because like I packed lawn, I, I packed lawn tractors basically my entire career. Like my, my rifle and my pistol were both Like very utilitarian, Mm -hmm. essentially like the John Deere of work guns. You know, Mm -hmm. like you know they're gonna run, you know they're gonna plow the field. But it's kind of nice to get behind the the wheel of a Ferrari, right? It's nice. Yeah. And you and Don both nerds beyond
3: imagination. Like you said, fourteen things in the last ninety seconds (laughs) that I can't even like. I don't even know what that means. It's like I've got a you know a compact Ruger nine millimeter is by
0: that's like you know. Point and shoot, baby. Don yeah. Don talks about about loading, you know, about you know hand loads and loads and all this other shit. Like Don talks about shooting, I'm just like, okay, whatever, dude. Yeah. Like I, like you lost me at something, something, something. Because he'll go down the rabbit hole, and I don't even know what the fuck he's talking the, about. It's
3: not that I didn't believe Don was a good shot and was like yeah, yeah. this stuff, but like until I saw it.
0: Yeah, he's legit.
3: He is really freaking good. He's really good. Like, it is not a front. It is for real.
0: Like, he can really, really shoot. Well, he and Eric both. Like, both of them. Mm -hmm. I I, I was on the, I I was walking in to my neighbor's house and he owns um, Alpha Munitions. I I think it was like last year or two years ago, whenever it was. I I can't remember. I was either walking into his house or we were at the ranch and um, he was on the phone with Eric and he was talking. Precision brass with Eric, because Eric tests a lot of their their brass for him, and and so Eric's a hardcore gunhead mm-hmm. reloading, like mm-hmm. hardcore gunhead. Don is a hardcore, hardcore gunhead, hardcore like. And anybody who thinks that that's that's fiction, oh, they're yeah. they're just total bullshit. They're, they when, they don't know what the fuck.
3: When uh had. when we were at at Tucker's place in Maine, and you guys started shooting clays. Yeah. Cuz we're going out there, you know, Tucker's he you know, crushed me. Pulling no, I mean it yeah. was he was he was no doubt. But both of you guys, I was like I'm not shooting. <laughs> I'm not I'm not shooting. All right? Y'all can have fun. I'll hand you the gun. <laughs> I'm just going to watch this unfold. And I probably would have shot were it not for Don hitting the first like 20 things in succession oh, I know. just like boom 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 boom. I'm like I'm out.
0: He I'm out. he handed me my ass too. like cuz I admittedly like i i I am not very good at at shooting clays it takes me a while to get into the reps but and and it's not my favorite thing to do i like it it's fun like what i like to do is i like to shoot pistols Mm -hmm. like typically and i like to shoot pistols real fast i like a lot of steel that's what i like you know there are some guys that are into long range precision there's some guys that are into clays there's some Mm -hmm. guys into three gun there's some guys into all this different types like yeah, that's cool, man. But, you know, what I like doing is I like running, like, race pistols, mm-hmm. like, super fast. Mm-hmm. That's what I like doing. And Don is one of those guys that he knows all about the calibers and penetration rates and what's good for hunting and, like, all the 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 really detailed perspective oh, yeah. of the firearms. Oh, yeah. And I, it, it sounds kind of weird where we're like, well, oh, we're out with, like, Tucker and Don – sounds kind of name droppy. It's, it's actually not meant to be. I I truly admire the fact like I get to do this, but I also think that it's, it's my responsibility to tell the, the, the listeners like what I did because I'm, I get to live, you get to live vicariously through me in these (laughs) times because it's like, these are the coolest dudes on the planet. And you guys allow me to go out and do some of this stuff. So I get to go and like, shoot skeet with don or go and hang out with tucker and don well Mm -hmm. i gotta tell you guys about it because it's my it's my responsibility to say it it's not me flexing it's me saying thank you because this is pretty epic and tucker that guy is so much fun tucker could transition into stand-up comedy. Tomorrow, mm-hmm. like tomorrow, he could be a stand-up comedian, mm-hmm. which would be super funny, by the way, because he'd be wearing like a, a flannel with Dockers and Birkingstock. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and he's hilarious. Like he is one of the funniest people. No doubt. He's one of the funniest no people I've well, ever been and around.
3: That's why, you know, talking about Don and Tucker in particular, it's like, you know, in these positions that we've been fortunate enough to, to be in to find ourselves in a place like that. Um we've met plenty of people who are totally full of crap that you see them, how they are on the television, see how they are in front of the camera or in the public light. And then you see how, who they are behind the scenes and they're completely different and they're a jerk to the person serving them. They're a, you know, whatever you, you get it. And, and those guys, I, I just think the world of them. And that's why I say like, people can say what they want about Don's political beliefs. I can say what they want about Tucker's political beliefs, et cetera. These are people who genuinely believe something and are willing to put themselves out there in a way that most of us can't even fathom the attacks that they endure, their family, what they go through, what they sacrifice to, to do that. And, um, that's why, you know, I'll go to the mat for Don over anything yeah, because Don's been a real friend to me Mm -hmm. when he didn't have to be. And when there wasn't, no one would ever know if he'd, you know, cast me aside during a period when I was persona non grata, mm-hmm. you know? And he didn't. He was my friend, mm-hmm. you know? And so that's why I say Don's a genuine guy. He genuine, is. Genuine well, people.
0: He's a genuine friend to me. He doesn't have to be a friend. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, we get beat up by certain portions of, you know, the, the right or the left, depending. And Don doesn't have to go to the mats for us. He just does it because yeah. he's been my friend. Don has been our friend before Black Rifle was cool. And... And that's the other thing. I was talking to somebody else. I forget who it was because they were they were talking about, well, is that bad for the co- public image of the company to be associated with Junior? And I was like, I don't fucking care. Hmm. Like, I'm not going to alienate my friends because of what's happening politically. Like, I hang out with them and I'm not going to hide the fact that I'm friends with somebody hmm. because there's some public perception. Like, if you don't like it, Then fuck off. Yeah. Like he's a good guy. And more importantly, he's my friend. So it's like, you know, I have friends that are both left or right. And the other piece to that was like, I was friends with Tulsi before she was an independent. Mm -hmm. It I didn't like not be friends with her because she's on the left. My other buddy was running for um uh auditor in New York and Zach iskell He's a he's a really good friend of mine. He's a Democrat. I'm not going to stop being friends with people because of their political party. We can have a political conversation. We can debate things. We can disagree. But if they're a good person, they're still a good person. Yeah.
3: And I think that's a lot closer to real America than most of this, like, you know, WWE-style politics <laughs> that we're experiencing it's so right true. now. You know, uh, I've got family members I saw over Thanksgiving that that I know think that uh, it is crazy that I worked— for Trump. Yeah. They think that that's just like the craziest freaking thing, but they also know me and they know I'm a good guy. And so they're like, well, I might think he's, you know, a lunatic or whatever they think about Trump. But like, so I want to like, they're willing to like engage with me. It's like, okay, help me understand your rationale behind some of the things that you did and what you believe and who you, you know, and for them, like, I I know they're good folks, you know, salt of the earth people, my family, like, like, if they think that it's just a difference of perspective, it's not a difference in uh, value or dignity or morality no. that you're just like a piece of garbage that you didn't <laughs> vote for the guy that I did and I'm not going to talk to you anymore. It's yeah. like This is a TV facade. This is like <laughs> what they want. They want it to be like, they want it to be that you can't sit at your Thanksgiving yeah. or Christmas dinner table with your family because you're so dialed in to MSNBC mm, yeah, yeah. and what they are saying there, that that consumes your whole mm. identity. And that's another thing. It's like people's identity has gotten so caught up in this like this political moment. It's like, go find an identity outside of Of your political beliefs, for heaven's sakes, there are things much more foundational, much more important than that. Mm -hmm. For me, it's my faith. For other people, it's you know what other other things that they have. But like these things are so much more important than politics, and I think that's one of the things that's gotten screwed up about the current moment in American life is the hierarchy of things that we seem to care about. Politics has gone way too high way too up high. that list, and in my view, and I'll say this in my personal life, the amount that I follow the day-to-day news mm-hmm. uh, has an inverse relationship with my happiness. Oh, same.
0: Yeah, yeah. Same.
3: I, I don't. If you check yeah. out and don't watch it for a while, first of all, you'll realize you you know you didn't pay attention for a week. And absolutely nothing changed.
0: Nothing changed.
3: 97 crazy things <laughs> yeah.
0: happened, but, like, nothing actually yeah. Yeah, yeah, changed. Yeah. What's well, Kanye know? doing this week? Yeah,
3: no, exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's like, dude, I could have lived without that whole saga. Like, yeah. you had a good point to 78 different sagas that have happened that, like, consumed the news over the past four or five years or whatever that I, like, had no meaningful effect on my life whatsoever. And, you know, I feel like at this point... You know, because of the way the information uh, mm. landscape is, like if something's really important, it'll find me. I don't watch any of it. I don't watch television. Uh, I don't watch any of the news stuff. Like you don't watch anything. I watch none wow. of it, bro. And you know what? That's actually one of the things. I mean, that that um, stuck out to me about Tucker and why right. I think Tucker's show is unique right now is Tucker's got this place in Maine. Yeah. Where he is able to unplug from the world and think
0: deeply yeah, yeah.
3: about foundational issues. Yeah. And yes, we need to put the current, it needs to be current, whatever's sure. happening right now, but we're gonna put it in the context of a of like deeper foundational beliefs. And the reason he's able to do that is he's not consuming a never-ending stream of uh, you know, micro stories that are coming around every day. He's like able to kind of unplug from that a little bit. And I think that's why his monologues have become kind of uh, must-watch sometimes is because he's actually thinking about this differently and not just being reactive to whatever's happening in the
0: news on a given day. Yeah. Well, that that was the thing I I found most impressive because he doesn't watch anything. Yeah. He he doesn't even follow shit on Twitter. Totally. So he doesn't know. And I I, I found it weird because I was talking to – was it Lexi? Is that his, uh, one of his people working there? And she's like, yeah, he doesn't follow anything. Mm-hmm. So he doesn't know, he mm-hmm. doesn't know what's going on and, you know, he'll find things and then he'll talk about them. And they're incredible. And just watching that unfold and the fact that he does it, like basically from a, uh, a closet, <laughs> you know, from, from out in the middle of, you know, Maine or wherever he is. And I, I completely and 110% agree with you. Uh, Post and ghost is a whole thing that that uh, you know Joe he talks a lot about is like don't read the comments and post yes, and ghost no doubt and so it's so funny because I'll, I'll hear it every now and again and people think that I don't know maybe they do or maybe they don't but I don't read the comments to mm-hmm. anything like mm-hmm. ever and I don't read the comments nor do I nor does that stuff even reach me I don't even have it on my phone typically so I don't even mm-hmm. have like Twitter. I have Instagram, but most of the time I just post and then I just ghost, right? Mm -hmm. Or I'll like like a few things the first five minutes and then I'm like, then I'm gone until Mm -hmm. the next time. Because you're exactly right. It doesn't matter. Like it it just doesn't matter. And it directly affects psychology. I think it was last year. It's been well over a year. I really haven't paid attention to shit in the comment section, Mm -hmm. but- well, you know, I have like a marketing person or whomever. And so if they're like asking questions or, you know, doing whatever they're doing, they can ask questions. Like our customers can DM Black Rifle. They can talk about it in the comment section. They can do all the things they need to do as far as like customer interaction. But the other piece is, is like, we don't need like the, the negative shit,
4: mm-hmm.
0: which is also the other thing. Like people say, well, you guys, you guys delete comments. You know Why? Because it's just like somebody coming into my fucking coffee shop. And if they want to run their mouth and be assholes, I'm going to kick them out. Right. It's my page. (laughs) It's my company.
4: Right, right, So it's
0: like if some guy comes in and he's acting like a fool, I'm going to tell him to leave. Mm -hmm. It's the same. So this Mm -hmm. expectation like, well, you guys are deleting and blocking. It's the same thing. Mm -hmm. Get the fuck out. Mm -hmm. Like if you want to come into our coffee shop or come into one of our pages and you guys want to run your mouths... And not talk Mm -hmm. about, like, how can we create positivity? Because I always talk about psychology is more infectious than the flu. So if you're spreading negative psychology, and and just, you know, FYI, in the last three months, four months, the last four months, two of my close friends have committed suicide. Two. In four months. I, I don't have a lot of close friends. Part of what my responsibility is back to the community is being positive, professional, and polite, and plugging in and creating positive psychology across the board. So if we're not creating some type of value, Mm -hmm. and the value has to be positive, it can't be negative, I don't believe in reacting in negative ways towards negative information. Because what that does, it compounds the interest. In my subculture of GWAT veterans, we don't need more bullshit. Like, we need people that are out there. Like, we need more stuff like Travis jumping cars and jumping, you know, helicopters. We need more stories about Mm -hmm. guys like Clint Trial, you know, enduring through very physical and psychological hard and difficult things. The community, and especially social, does not need more negative shit. They just Mm -hmm. don't. So I don't believe in it. And the cool thing is, is it's good to be king. I just tell tell the guys, get them the fuck out. Because guess what? I come into my shop every day, you know, in my coffee shop with my 200-pound, furry, fucking (laughs) retarded dogs, you know, work out in my gym and make, you know, geisha, you know, geisha coffee, geisha, geisha coffee and work around 100 people and 50-plus of those are Mm -hmm. vets. Like, I don't don't need the baggage, man. I get to high-five my customers. They're coming in. We talk about all this, like, really incredible shit that we're doing, you know, like Logan Stark is down in Arizona with Jericho Denman and they're doing folds of honor jumps. So they're doing seven continents in seven days. They're jumping They're They're doing a world record, seven continents in seven days, two former special operations vets that just learned how to skydive this year. Like guys that were like Jericho and, and, and Logan both like these guys are hardcore combat vets Mm -hmm. and they're, Leading by example, they're going out doing fucking epic shit, mm-hmm. telling the other guys in our GWAC community, like this is what's capable. You can go out and do this. That's the story that we need. Yeah. We don't need more of like, you know, fuck you or fuck you or whatever it is. And it's like my entrepreneurial journey, and one of the reasons why we, you know, we do what we did. Like one of the big reasons we went public was because I wanted people to see. That you could start a company and from your garage to living paycheck to paycheck to nine years, you could be publicly traded.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: Like, this is a nine year anniversary this month in my company. Mm-hmm. And I took it from my garage to being publicly traded. I have 900 plus employees. I did that as a former Green Beret and a guy that worked at the CIA, did it in nine years. There's an entire culture of GWAP bets that need to be inspired to go out and say, you know what? If that dumb fuck did it, <laughs> I can sure as shit yeah. do it. Yeah. And if we discredit, and I'm not saying like, we like we all have to celebrate the fact that this is, this has been done. I'm saying like that, you know, me, Matt and Jared, like I grew up basically in a, you know, logging town in the middle of Idaho, you know, like lower middle class. And, Matt's the same same way. Jared's the same way. Like, dude, we were all like lower middle class. And now we have a company with 900 mm-hmm. employees. that's publicly traded. That's it's worth over a yeah. billion dollars. Like, story. guys, I talk about if, if, if it wasn't me, I need that story to still yeah. exist because I want guys to go out and start all the other businesses that are 10 times smarter than I are. They're 10 times more disciplined. There are guys out there that are just better just in general. And- those are the stories we need we don't need more of this and we absolutely do not need any more guys taking their own lives because they can't they don't feel like there's a way Mm -hmm. out
3: yeah well there's there's obviously more and more research on you know, the power of social media and the impact yeah. that it has on people's psychologies, and I'm no psychologist by any You're means, not? but— uh, That's not your background? No. What
4: well, did you
3: think I was coming on today? Oh, well, okay. Well, since I'm here, I'll give you a little amateur psychology. One of the things that has stuck out to me about the research that I have read about it is um, if you think about human history, for most of human history, um, you were born, lived, and died in a very small area. Yeah. The number of people that you interacted with, extremely small number of people, your village, your tribe, your, you know, whatever, the town that you live in. And if something happened in that community, it impacted everybody. Yeah if there was a suicide in the community or if there was an accident somebody died or if there was somebody's child who fell off of a you know fell down a mountain and broke both their legs and can't walk anymore all these things happen it had a profound psychological effect on people in that community because they knew that person and they knew that family and they knew them on a deep like personal level well now imagine extrapolating that micro psychology into this macro psychology of we can't go 15 minutes without seeing some tragedy put in front of us on our phones or some terrible thing or some people ripping each other's heads off over some political thing or like whatever it may be. And if you do not take control of your own life Mm -hmm. and say, I am not going to allow this to hijack my happiness, my day, my psychology, uh, you can very easily uh, find yourself in a really dark place just by virtue of the things that are just put in front of you that you're scrolling every single day. And so when I think about the power of TikTok, for instance, and, and why I am, you know, if you go look at my Twitter feed, I don't tweet a lot of stuff, but I bet you... You know, more than a quarter of what I post is related to TikTok is because I understand what the Chinese Communist Party is able to leverage that kind of psychological warfare, that kind of information platform Mm -hmm. uh, to do. Not just collecting data on you, but the way that it can impact your thinking. If you ask a a child, uh, a teenager in China. What they want to be when they grow up, it'll be jobs like, I want to be an engineer. Or right, I want right. a if you ask a teenager in the United States what they want to be, the number one response is a social media influencer. Are you serious? It's the number one, the number one job that they would like to have. Ugh. And so the difference is, so back to TikTok, in China, the product, the, the TikTok equivalent that they have, it's not called TikTok there. It shows educational content. It shows all these different things. They, they, and and uh, they're not able to consume an unlimited mm. amount of just like right. junk. And here they've got our kids addicted to that junk to the point that they no longer aspire to be astronauts and firemen and policemen mm. and engineers and whatever, adventurers, explorers, entrepreneurs, you name it. They want to be a social media influencer. That's the highest Peak that they could probably possibly get to in their minds.
0: The power of this stuff is, you know, we we'll, we are barely scratching the surface of what we understand. the The interesting p- thing that I've I continue to think about with TikTok in just in social media is this is not a secret. Like mm-hmm. most of social media, and we'll, we'll just call it out as it is. It, it doesn't create a positive psychology within the individual. Mm-hmm. This is this is not a secret. So, like, if you get off the scroll and start engaging with people, your life gets better. It just gets yeah. better. It, then when you get into social programming, and, and I think, you know, there's lots of people that have talked about, just social media and the, the positive psychological effects or programming those effects as far as dopamine hits when it comes to likes and, yep. you know, interaction or whatever it is. But we know TikTok is... A Chinese technology. Yes. Yes. And we know this is having a direct effect on our country. We know all these things. Mm -hmm. This isn't like right wing propaganda. Right. This is like real. We also know that Chinese are not our friends. Mm -hmm. Like, this is the other thing that I'm like, I'm constantly amazed by is when you say the Chinese Communist Party, when we say the Chinese are not our friends, people there are people in the country that are like, Oh, that's some right wing propaganda. And you're like, it is not propaganda. The Chinese communist party, they're not our friends. They're not, they're not like looking out for the best interests of America. Like you guys are fucking stupid. If you think so, like they're just not. And TikTok is a great example of that where it is directly affecting the psychology of mm-hmm. our, our children in the United States. And then as a country, and as a parent, like my my daughter's turning nine years old. after tomorrow, she doesn't have a phone. Like I'm not, I'm not yeah. allowing her to like download apps. She has an iPad that she can, she can like do her homework on every every when she has a homework requirement, mm-hmm. and or she can play chess on, and every now and again she can watch movies on. But we hyper control what is on that iPad because we know how dangerous mm-hmm. this stuff is for a child. We know. So, what's interesting to me is as a country, are people just blithely like making these decisions and like opting in? I think, is it part, and this is more of a question, is it part the fact that people are also buying into this narrative if you say something negative against the Chinese Communist Party that is somehow perceived as racist? Do you think that's like part of this bullshit? I think
3: it's part of it, and I will say they love that. They love that so much. They freaking love it. They think it's hilarious that we would eat ourselves in that way. Um, You know, for people who are probably listening to this, like, who the crap is this guy? Like, oh, you know. We're going to get into that. Well, (laughs) I want to give a little context before I answer your question, you know. When I was serving as uh, Deputy Director of National Intelligence for Strategy and Communications. It's uh, no big deal. It's no big at, deal. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> at, uh, in the Office of Director of National Intelligence, like the, the job of the, the, the organization, uh, the central uh, job every day is to produce the president's daily brief. Yeah. Uh, this compendium of the most sensitive intelligence that we have to put it in front of the president and other senior officials to help them be as informed as they can possibly be and PDB. make
0: decisions. The PDB. The PDB is a and big deal, guys. By by the way, like if you're an Intel guy and you make the PDB, that's a that's kind of the that's the thing. 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 That's a thing. That's a thing. That's a thing. Yeah,
3: yeah. Um, the thing that was the most striking when I got there was the China threat, and it's like even if I intuitively understood, right? Uh, you know, China is is not our friend, and we're but like the scope and magnitude of what they are doing is mind boggling. And this is where when when people talk about the difference between, uh, let's take a Russia, for example, not our friends either, no. or China. The difference is uh, Russia has to—they don't have unlimited resources. They've got to pick a place that they're right. going to screw with us yeah. and go deep yeah, yeah. on that. China is all across the board. They have the resources to it, compete with us all yeah, over yeah. the place. The other thing is— Um, Let's go back to the Cold War. The Soviets didn't have uh, manufacturing facilities that they owned in the American heartland. Right. And they weren't employing a bunch of Americans and they didn't have our uh, whole, um, you know, the the, uh, supply chain tied up going through. Uh, the Soviet Union, right? The way that we are so deeply integrated with China and our economies, and the fact that they very well they do have manufacturing facilities here in the United States yeah. that they control those things. We've got a lot of our supply chain over there. These things create national security threats that we sleepwalked our way into, allowing these things. Do, do you to think happen. it
0: was like sleepwalking, or do you think it was a combination of? Arrogance, so I would say it was like greed and hubris to a mm-hmm. certain degree, mm-hmm. where we just assumed we're the best, and there's no way that we can be toppled. Yeah. And oh, by the way, we're just gonna keep making a fuck ton of money. Yeah. I, I, I'm just, I'm, I, well, I'm, I'm just I throwing
3: think, it out there. No, I think you're right. There, are, there were some fundamental assumptions that were made that were that have been proven wrong. One of those is that. The more you liberalize a country's economy,
4: Mm.
3: the more their political system will liberalize. So all these people were forecasting China opens up its economy. We engage with them economically. Naturally, they are going to be a free and open society at some point. And what they said was, uh, no, we're going to try to have, uh, and I'm putting myself in the shoes of like Chinese Communist Party leadership. I'm going to have the best of both worlds. I'm going to get the money. That comes from a market economy, at least some elements of a market yeah. economy, while maintaining command and control over my population, my having total authority and power right. in the country. And so that is something that we have not seen, certainly not at this scale, but have not really seen work quite in that way in the past. And so I think there were some people in a well-meaning way read the, read the situation wrong. Right. Uh, so that's one. The second piece that you hit on, I think, is exactly right. Greed is a huge part of this. Huge part of this, oh, and yeah. to this day, uh, I mean, let's just take the the budding, uh, growing venture capital scene in China. Yeah, uh, Sequoia Capital in the United States taught them how to do that. Oh yeah, Sequoia Capital went over there and taught them how to have this kind of venture capital industry that drove the innovation in Sil- Silicon Valley that did yep. so much wealth creation, intellectual property creation in the United States, teaching them how to do these things because they saw an a massive market of a billion plus people that they're going to tap into, right? And the same thing when we think about uh, all these companies uh, that are American companies, a great American success story is like an Apple. Yeah. I mean, not to just single them out, I could really go with I can go any direction Anywhere. on this, yeah. but like Apple is a great example of um, hey, we can save a crap ton of money yep. in our manufacturing process by locating these facilities in China, and then what happens over time? Uh, they basically become held hostage to China because now they're so dependent on their manufacturing over there. That here's a great example: Apple used to put on their phones um, "made in California." Yep. Well, at some point, the CCP said, "Well, hold on just a second. Like this is being made in Xinjiang. This right. is being made here in China." I don't want you putting that on your products anymore. And they have to like say, okay, you know, are we gonna risk this giant thing that we built over here that we are so uh, held hostage by, or are we just gonna acquiesce? And so you start doing this in little things and little things, and over time, you start doing it in bigger and bigger things. And that's what we're seeing across the board is so many of these great American companies, incredible American success stories, um, they chase a little bit of extra margin In their supply chain, in their manufacturing, whatever it may be, and they're going to give up a little bit. Look, everybody's system's a little bit different, right? They just have a different system than us. We're going to respect their system. And at some point, uh, your business has been had, and some of the greatest American companies are now unfortunately held hostage by the Chinese Communist Party because of greed.
0: Oh, yeah, I, I see it. I see it just based on a manufacturing capability within the United States. So mm-hmm. there are things that we can make here, and there are things that we can't make here. Mm-hmm. So I've talked about it before, but a double-wall stainless steel thermos, for instance. So a double-wall stainless steel vacuum-sealed thermos, they do not have a factory in the United States that can make this item. That's mm-hmm. like the traditional thermos. Yep. And the expectation from a customer is, we want you to buy American-made on my... I'm with you. I, I'm 100 with you. I want to buy American made. I want to support American manufacturing. I want to build jobs in the United States. I do. There's not a factory. I was yeah. having this conversation with one of our customers, and they're like, "Well, why don't you guys build a factory?" I'm like, "Because I don't have an extra 100 million bucks laying around." <laughs> right. Like, I it's like, <laughs> yeah. I forgot my wallet at home. I'm right. yeah. like, uh, you know, yeah. I, I I don't have an extra 100 million bucks sitting around. And the, oh, by the way, labor costs in the United States with you know, when we look at overall labor costs, when we look at investing in the infrastructure. That thermos would cost over two hundred dollars, mm-hmm. or uh, that 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 mug, you wouldn't pay for it. Yeah. So, I know at one side of the yeah, out of one side of your mouth, you're saying American made. We have to buy American made. Well, that's great. Are you willing to pay fifty dollars for a t-shirt? Yeah. Because that's what it's going to take.
3: Yeah. Well, it's going to take. Time. I mean, this is mm-hmm. like the biggest problem that we have uh, right now, in my view. Yeah, not the biggest problem, but one of them. Um, if you look at the difference between decision making in the United States and decision making in China, we're making decisions on a two-year, four-year, at most an eight-year political yeah. cycle. Yeah. They're making decisions Hundred. a millennia. Yeah. And, and when you can lay the groundwork like that, and, and this is, you know, where Xi Jinping being president for life is like, I don't have to worry about the political whims of my system. I'm going to power through some of these challenges here because right. I'm playing the long game. Right. There's some advantages to that. So any politician who's going to stand up there and say, I got a quick fix for this is full of crap <laughs> because there are so many things that are going to have to happen all interconnected, Over the next decades for us to get back to where we need to be as a manufacturing power, it's going to take real time. Um, And part of that is expertise that we have lost. But one of the advantages that China has right now from a manufacturing perspective and thinking specifically about the the iPhone, there are some of the very intricate, tiny technical uh, capabilities that you have to have to to build something from an engineering standpoint that is that – technologically advanced in that tiny of a package that they have hundreds of thousands of people in China who now are experts in that they've been doing it. They've been developing and refining that skill set that they can deploy for Apple and other technology companies that there ain't nobody in the United States right now that even has that capability. So it's not just, we need a physical location. We need a workforce that's able to do those types of things. Um, you know, right now, one of the biggest, you know, things that, that flares up every now and then is just the issue of Taiwan. Yeah. And so why is Taiwan so important? Well, there's a lot of reasons, you know, that, that, that have to do with shipping in that region of the world. And there's so much of the world's shipping that flows through that area. And if we see control of the Chinese, what's that going to be mean for freedom of navigation and all these different things? But one of them is Taiwan Semiconductor, TSMC. They make the best chips in the world. And so many of the chips that we get in our highest performing technical capabilities come from TSMC. If China had control of of Taiwan and had TSMC, um, that not only is a meaningful thing for them, that is a national security threat for us beyond imagination. And also – even in our—everything's got a chip in it these days. Our freaking cars have chips yeah, in yeah. them, like all these things. Like one of the reasons why car manufacturing in the United States is down is they don't have enough chips to put in their freaking cars to be able to create these things. Right. So TSMC now is making a very heavy investment in— uh, I believe it's in Arizona uh, or Nevada, one of the two out there, um, that they're br- building some of this capability here, building this these chip fabs here in the United States so that we have the capability to create that. And some of the technologies that are going to decide our future, artificial intelligence, you know, all these different uh, quantum computing, these things that rely on highly sophisticated chips that TSMC is one of the few in the world that can do, and in some cases the only in the world that can do, we have got to have that capability here because these are sort of winner-take-all right. technologies. If you suddenly have a quantum computing, and AI capability that far supersedes everybody else, the way that that impacts every other thing downstream from a te- technological standpoint is so profound, you could suddenly be the world's superpower right. because of those technologies. Yeah, yeah,
0: that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, so it's it's almost as if that because I mean for the for the longest time, like right, we've been in the we've been leading the world in technology. That's right, right. So yeah. we've had a hundred years of leading the world in technology. Mm-hmm. And, well, and, and it used to be sorry to interrupt you, but
3: least, like on that point, Silicon Valley fifty years ago some of the founders of Silicon Valley in this unbelievable wealth creation and technology creation machine were people who were deeply ingrained in, in public service. Oh, yeah. Who were people who were like believed that it was righteous for the United States military to have the supreme capability of the world because we're going to be a force for good in the world. These are people who serve their country in uniform, served their country in government in different capacities. And what has happened in recent years is um, the Gulf between US interest and Silicon Valley interest has expanded to the point that there's a big time cultural difference between the two but you have a lot of these big companies like you know Google was was one example that that is now believes it's immoral to help the US yeah. military. Yep. Um and so that divide has got to be bridged or we're going to lose this technological supremacy that we have
0: had for for all these years. Well, do you think that that comes from, well, I I, I mean, because I have a theory, right, which is uh, as you start to build these companies specifically, let's talk about Silicon Valley. So you start to build these companies and you start to hire uh, labor force from outside of the United States, and then you're bringing in uh, people from Pakistan, India, China, you're kind of pulling together this multinational conglomerate of, 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 of ideologies, essentially. And then once you do that, what what that does is it says, well, you know, you came from Pakistan, you came from India, you came from China, you came from you mm-hmm. know the Ukraine and Russia and all these other things. Then you have a minority of the workforce essentially being from the United States, mm-hmm. and then there's this anti-United States rhetoric that's kind of a conforming ideology, specifically related to that company or corporate mm-hmm. culture. It then, when you layer that on to, well, now if the universities themselves are somewhat anti-patriotic, mm-hmm. yep. so you you have this kind of anti-American belief within some of the corporate cultures mm-hmm. based on the layer cake of differences, and and uh, you know we have like Afghanis, for instance, that work here, but the Afghans that work here serve the United States. In their families, they yeah. served the United States in the in the in the war against terror, specifically yeah. in Afghanistan. They fought against the Taliban. They're very patriotic. They're very American. Yeah, and I I I think that there's a lot of this anti-American rhetoric that is stemming from well, one negative propaganda that's essentially it's an indoctrination factory within the university systems, which we can go down that rabbit hole for hours. Yeah, and then you have people that are coming in from other political systems, like, well, wait a minute, you know, like I came from wherever and my, I still believe there's there's somewhat of an economic caste system within India. I think there's probably zero debate as to whether or not mm-hmm. that's factual or not. But if they're coming here specifically and they're not familiar with the land of opportunity and they don't see hmm. it as that, I think that kind of lends itself. Yeah.
3: Well, I have a I have a few thoughts on that. One is you know what we're talking about here is high skilled immigration so yeah. h1b visa yep. you know debate over how many of those should exist and whether this is a good thing for the country um, you know i don't know that the scale of that is large enough that that is the that is the core issue there right uh, there may be some of some of that a lot of these people who come here i have found are much more in the vein of like what you're talking about. Like very patriotic, this right. land that they gives them this incredible opportunity and they feel like they they owe this country that gave them a chance, mm-hmm. you know, something. Um I think it's it's much more the wokeness yeah. that has just so has become so pervasive starting in these academic institutions that you're talking about and this virtue virtue signaling, mm-hmm. uh, now that if you're out in Silicon Valley, you got to support the right candidates. Yeah. You gotta, you gotta support the right causes, whatever the cause of, the cause of the day changes. Yeah, right. Yeah. And you can see what it is based on people's Twitter avatar yeah okay so like right now we're gonna support (laughs) this thing tomorrow it'll be that thing and like i'm gonna show the world that i support what i'm supposed to support right and the last thing right now that you're supposed to support is uh the the oppressor the great american oppressor my god how could you possibly be for the american military or be for uh, this fundamentally racist country that we live in like how could you possibly support american ideals american ideals are Founded in roots of racism right, and right. and oppression and and colonialism. I mean, this is like that is the ide- ideology that is that is so destructive and is having these trickle down effects. I think much more than the immigration uh, issue, where a yeah. lot of these people come here uh, appreciate the opportunity that they
4: got.
0: I would see that, like you know, like the, the, there, there's like very disturbing portions portions of rhetoric that you know come out of the university system where you know the the oppressor language of mathematics for instance right where math to me is one of those things where it's really simple oh bro when i found out math was racist i was shook i (laughs) like math and and you know i've i haven't really gone down the rabbit hole too much on this because i just think it's so stupid that i'm like math is math like like it's like it's like gravity man It, it works whether you want to believe in it or not, yes. it is there. It, mm-hmm. it it doesn't fucking matter whether or not you wanna believe in it, it is there. Mm-hmm. So math is everything. It's it's mm-hmm. quite literally everything. The mm-hmm. entire aspect of how we measure any form of life is literally math. Mm-hmm. So when I think about like this, this thing, it was like, well, it's inherently racist or whatever that stupid conversation is, it's ridiculous. Yeah. It's ridiculous. When we're talking about theoretical physics, you can say there are mathematical principles that go into this, but it's theoretical. But math is math. Mm-hmm. Like two plus two equals four.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: I can measure how much does this weigh. I know how much the dimensions are. It is a measurement. It has a... Literally zero to do with whether or not they're like political or socioeconomic or doesn't care, or it doesn't care. So, one piece to this, this entire like this, this entire discourse or the debate is if you guys are going to say that this like mathematics is inherently like racist or judgmental, we are starting this entire conversation with the other side being completely and fundamentally out yeah. to fucking lunch. Well, like out to lunch. It is what it is. So totally. it's like, I don't even know how to have a conversation you can't. with somebody you can't. that way.
3: And, and part of this is like the, the death of, of absolute truth. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it's like, you know, who are you to tell me that, that math is true? Like right. who, who are you to oppress right, me right, with right, your right. views on the world? I happen to have a different view. You know, l- let me just break it to some folks. Uh, some views are more valid than others. Right, I right. know that hurts your feelings yeah, a yeah. little bit. Some facts are just facts. The truth is just the truth. And then you've got your opinion and you can have it. And it's probably stupid, but you can have it. Yeah, and yeah. I, I support your right to have your opinion. <laughs> but the second that you try to force your opinion on me, okay, now we got a problem. Right. Because your opinion is factually incorrect. Okay, <laughs> and so it is factually incorrect. <laughs> if, if you are expecting me, uh, as a matter of courtesy, to bend over for you mm. and bow at your feet of your at the feet of your opinion, uh, in direct defiance of the facts that I know to be true, I ain't doing it. Thomas no. Jefferson, one of my favorite Jefferson quotes. It's on the top of the. Jefferson Monument in a memorial in in D.C. I have sworn upon the altar of God eternal hostility over any tyranny over the minds of men. Right. I have sworn upon the altar of God eternal hostility against any tyranny over the minds of men. If you are going to try to—talk about oppression—if you're going to try to force me to say something that I know to be factually incorrect, you are trying to oppress me. Right. Right. And and screw you. Yeah, yeah. Because that's America to me, is that I have I'm within my right to have my views. You're within your right to have your views. But the second one or the other of us tries to impose our opinion on the other, that's not America. Yeah. That's not America anymore. And that's that's, that's part a of the really problem. Good point. And that's how we can get to the point that, you know, math may or may not be true. It's just, you know, it depends on how you feel that day. It depends on what it, color you are, what race or gender you
0: are. But it's interesting to me because it it's it's as if people are trying to force us into living into a thought exercise. By the way, I'm okay with thought exercises because I find them fascinating. Mm-hmm. If you want to live in a, in, a, in a different reality where we're having these thought exercises where it's like, imagine this or what if this, that's a thought sure.
2: exercise
0: which I'm more than happy to participate in a in a theoretical or a thought exercise yeah, like it's healthy it's super you, it's you'll either confirm super, or realize super, that you were wrong in yeah, your yeah, yeah. that's a good thing yeah but when you're forcing or trying to force people to live within a thought exercise where there's mm-hmm. quite literally uh it, it's a it's a theory or a, a hypothesis That, to me, is what you're referring to in the context of, like, if you want to impose your beliefs in this thought exercise on somebody else, and then it's directly opposing facts, Mm -hmm. it's like denying gravity. Just because you deny gravity doesn't make it true. That's right. That's exactly (laughs) right. It doesn't make it true. You can deny it all you want, jump off this building and see what happens. Yeah, there's a a portion of the internet that still believes the world is flat. Yeah. Okay. Like, guys, like... Interesting thought exercise for us to like, you know, quite literally like talk to physicists and and talk to different aspects of, of, of like mathematicians, uh, you know, physicists and you know astronauts mm-hmm. and astrophysicists and all these different things. You could say, let's go into this thought exercise and quite literally imagine if the world was flat. Yeah, what would happen? And then we could like plug in all the aspects that were known, like gravity, the universe, and all these different things that we could say, interesting, interesting thought exercise. It can't work. Yeah. Like, you're you're fundamentally denying principles of fact in order to come to a conclusion that doesn't have a basis. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't work. It's it's as if you're saying well this 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 thing whatever this is you know my dog is 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 going to fly it can't it doesn't have wings it can't fly the only way it flies is if we drop it out of an airplane it gets on an airplane it's shot out of a cannon we're mm-hmm. not going to do any of those things mm-hmm. but this thought exercise that people want us to live in is really it's interesting from a debate point like i yeah. I, I i there's a there's a really interesting uh podcast I used to listen to quite a bit. It was just debates, right? It was just like people debating different issues. So they'd bring in a subject matter expert on one side and a subject matter from the other side, and then they would throw out something in the middle, and then they would just go at it as mm-hmm. if like a you know, intellectual octagon, right? Sure. And it you could see all the different arguments from different opposing sides, and it was really interesting mm-hmm. whether you agreed with it or not. Yeah. So I like complex dialogue from... from our country's perspective, (laughs) excuse me, complex dialogue is really interesting. It's when it's not complex. Yeah. And it's really just dumb. That's Mm -hmm. when I just kind of opt out where I'm like, that's just totally. Well,
3: this is why I think like the podcast format has Mm -hmm. been so healthy for American discourse and the ability to debate ideas. And because TV had just gotten us to the point where it was like, all right, guys, we got three and a half minutes here. (laughs) Uh, uh, we're going to go nuts on each other. Yeah. Okay. We're not going to have any nuance involved in this discussion. We're just going to like go after each other, uh, go. And it's like, well, we're not going to get anywhere doing that. But if we could sit here for an hour and a half or two and really hash it out on something, we can really get someone somewhere. Then we can actually identify here's the hole in your argument or here's the hole in my argument. I don't know how to respond to that. And so people can observe these things happening and it helps like, inform people's uh, the way that they view the world, I think, in a really good way, even when you, like, profoundly disagree with the person that you're listening to. Like, instead of setting up straw men yeah, of yeah. what somebody's argument is, like, let's just actually hear what their argument is. And this is what I think the power of um, the What is a Woman documentary oh, yeah. was because uh, the Matt Walsh guy went in there and he wasn't, like, trying to rip anybody's head off. No. He was just, like, very calmly, mm-hmm. okay, so... Tell me, you know what? What is a woman? Well, a woman is whatever, whatever you you, want you know. To if, be. You, yeah, if you yeah, if you if you you know, define yourself mm-hmm. as a woman, then then you could be a woman. Yeah. And if and if I you know whatever. And he said, well, okay, well, but if you identify as something the thing that you identify as, the woman yeah. thing that you're w- identifying. What is what that? Is that? <laughs> and yeah. like, no one can answer the question <laughs> yeah. because you've got this circular flawed logic that just like, it's, it's just a thought whatever. exercise. Yeah. It's it's like, like, it's,
0: that's all it is. It's like, hey, let's go through this thought yes. exercise and then let's find, you know, the dead ends. Let's figure out where we're going to find all the dead ends so we can either debunk, disprove, whatever it mm-hmm. might be. It's just what it is. And it's like, yeah. guys, this is, can we just agree this is a thought exercise? Yeah. It's really interesting. Sure. Like, what if we could just identify as anything we wanted? Well, let's have that debate. Let's yeah. have that conversation. Super interesting, by the way. Sure. Once again, just because you say gravity doesn't exist That's doesn't right. mean that it doesn't well, exist. Well,
3: on that one, it's like you know, th- there we've gotten to this place too where if I am not willing to concede your your whatever idea you've got right. out there that is not based in fact, then I'm a bigot yeah, toward yeah. you. It's like. I could be respectful to you, you know, if you identify as whatever, and I'll, I'll still be respectful to you, but I'm not going to pretend that that you're something that you're factually not. Right. And like, I, I'm not going to be mean about it. No. Uh, and in fact, if you have a name that you would like to be called, you know, my real name's Clifton, but I like to be called Cliff. So you guys were nice enough to call me Cliff. I'll call you a name that you want to be called if that's because we all kind of get to choose sure. our names, but I'm not going to pretend that you're something that you're not. And I'm not, a, that doesn't make me a bigot. I happen to believe in reality.
0: <laughs> you know? Reality. Little thing called reality. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, you may or may not have heard of it.
4: <laughs>
0: I, I actually, like, I, I really enjoy like, like these, these thought exercise conversations because, because they are really interesting, right? Where you're like, what if this thing, right? Like, what if, we could just identify as anything. Or What if we were changing our name every day, like mm-hmm. we were changing our clothes? Like if I came into the office every day and I had a new name, it's like, well, yeah, that's kind of interesting, but it's also very confusing. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it creates like all these different problems within communication just in general as to like we have, if you believe in it or not, if you believe in like we have thousands of years of communicating directly. Yeah. Or if you believe that, you know, we were planted here by alien DNA a couple hundred years ago. I don't know, but it, but it does have a problem specifically related to the way that we communicate and then how sure. we communicate and the efficiencies of yes. communication. And so it's just even identifying like little obstacles within effective communication just in yeah. general as a society. So it like begins to really make people confused. Yeah. And I think that's part of the issue too, is because to me, like I'm, I'm confused, right? And so maybe I'm just not smart enough for some of these conversations either. Where I'm like, man, I'm super confused because, <laughs> like, I'm the same way. I'm like, hey, yeah. man, you want me to call you, you know, Dingo the Donut? I don't, I don't care, dude. I I really don't care because yeah. your name is your name. But it, you know, if you're like, hey, I'm actually, you know, seven foot three. I'd be like, man, you're not. You are just not. <laughs> Love you though, but <laughs> yeah. bro, you're not. Hey, dude, you're not. Dingo the three. Donut. You're, I got you, your name, but you're not seven foot yeah. three. I, I know yeah. what seven feet looks like and it's just not. Well, there used to be this, uh, appreciation for,
3: uh, I guess what you would almost call like ancient wisdom. Yeah. There's these things that have withstood the test of time. Yeah. You know, some of the, the things that we see in the Bible, some of these like foundational, like these, you know, Aristotle and Plato and all these people, these philosophers and these, this ancient wisdom that has existed and has withstood the test of time. Right. Uh, that somehow we have decided in our great arrogance, uh, we have become more enlightened. Right. And and actually, all of human history has been wrong <laughs> about all these things. And we have, uh, not divinely because we're not going to concede that there is a God, uh, something the universe has bestowed upon us, this great wisdom that no one has had before. And now all these things you believed were completely wrong. And now we've got like... You know, like the language thing. People in Spanish, the whole language is built around like, you know, feminine versus masculine. uh yeah, yeah. You know, we're, and it's like, they said, okay, that's okay. Because it's not going to be Latina or Latino anymore. It's going to be Latinx. We're going to use the X. We're going to okay. bring this X in here. Huh. And we're going to fix this for you guys. Your whole language is uh, bigoted. Okay. Okay. So we're going to fix it with this X. Right. You're now the Latinx. Okay. And, Interesting. And... They're all like, well, hold on just one frickin' second here. Like, this is outrageous. You're not changing my whole language because of this. But if they stood up and said that, they'd be like, well, what is wrong with you? Like, how how dare you not be woke enough to understand how bigoted your language has been for all of these millennia? You know, it's, it's freaking crazy.
1: Black Rifle Coffee Company set out on a mission to make the best cup of coffee that's ever hit your mug. The dream was to sell enough premium coffee to be able to build a support network of veterans, first responders, and law enforcement. Thanks to your support, all that dream has become a reality. Black Rifle Coffee is roasted by a veteran-led team of brilliant coffee graders here in the United States who work tirelessly to roast and bag the highest quality coffee right here in America. The coffee is truly one of a kind, but it's your support that gets the gear, funding, and supplies into the hands of those on our front lines. This year alone, your support has helped BRCC expand our team of active duty service members, veterans, and veteran family members. Black Rifle was also able to donate over 120,000 bags of coffee to veterans and first responders in 2022, all thanks to you. You can purchase at blackriflecoffee.com. You can also find Black Rifle Coffee in grocery and convenience stores near you. Black Rifle Coffee, America's coffee.
2: For decades, buying a silencer has been difficult, but in 2005, Silencer Central set out to simplify the suppressor buying process. So what happens when you buy from Silencer Central? Well, they help you find the right silencer for you, they handle the paperwork so you don't have to, and they give you a free NFA gun trust so you can share your suppressor. Silencer Central allows you to pay while you wait. They make sure your purchase is carefully prepped, packaged, and protected until the moment you're approved. Once approved, they deliver it straight to your door. So whether you're planning your next hunt or putting together a range day, you'll enjoy every shot you take with silencer central straight to your
0: front door. How shifting topics just a little bit. So you're here today. How did you get here? Like, so give me the, 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 the Clifton reader's digest version. Oh man. Um,
3: Okay. So I probably would start with, Uh, son and grandson of Baptist ministers moved around the South a lot, lived in Mississippi, Florida, Alabama. Like that's my jam, the South, man. I love it. Um, and really all I wanted to do growing up was, uh, in the NBA, you know, the good Lord made me five nine. (laughs) It is what it is. It is what it is. I really wanted to play in the NBA. And uh, I was fortunate enough to play in college, and I was playing at uh, Delta State University in Mississippi. Would you play point guard? Uh, point guard, but yeah, my problem was I wanted, I wanted to shoot it. Yeah, I yeah. wanted to shoot, it. and yeah. that was my real that was my problem. I just wanted to shoot it. <laughs> um, but I wanted to transfer, and a buddy of mine was playing at a junior college in South Alabama, and I went and visited. At the time, my family's living in in Florida. My dad's a pastor of a church down there, and I decided I'm going to call my dad. I'm going to tell him I'm transferring to this school in South Alabama, and uh, I call him, I tell him, I'm "This Enterprise, Alabama, I'm going to go to this junior college, whatever. It's kind of like dead silence. He's like, I was going to call you and tell you our family is moving to Enterprise, Alabama. Are you kidding me? He got called to a church there to be the pastor, completely separate from each other, end up our family ends up here reunited in Enterprise, Alabama. It's like if there's ever a point where I'm like, God have a plan for my life, it's like I look back at that moment, I'm like, it's undeniable. So played there, won a state championship, it was all going great, I'm going to go back and play at another four-year university, but my little brother, who's four years younger than me, uh, had started a band, and he was playing for kids at church, and they were like, we need a singer, and you sang in church choir growing up, would you be willing to sing for our band on Wednesday nights at church? So I'm like, cool, sure, I'll do that. Still looking at where I want to go play basketball. And then at some point somebody said, well, really what we should do is drop out of school and go on the road and play in this band. And if you could have heard our band at the time, you'd realize how ridiculous this, <laughs> this idea was. But uh, seemed like a great idea. And so that's what we did. And so for the next five, six, seven years, we toured all over the country, ended up having songs on MTV and on the radio. Seriously? and uh, Yeah, yeah. So that's what I did for a period of time there in the mid-2000s. Uh, what was the name of the band? I'm not going to say it. You're not? You okay. can say it. Actually, I've, I actually have some new songs that I record now just for fun. Really? So you can just look my name up and go to okay, Spotify okay. and listen if that's okay. what you really want to do. But um, I met a girl in that time period, wanted to get married. Being on the road 200-something days a year is not a good way to raise a family. And I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do next, and my Sunday school teacher had decided he was going to run for the State House of Representatives. He's like, I know you're looking for what to do next. Why don't you come and help me run this campaign? You've never done anything in politics. I've never done anything in politics, but, like, let's figure it out together. And so I did that, and it was a big year in Alabama. This is 2009. Republicans had not controlled the state legislature for 136 years since Reconstruction. And so this was going to be the year that Republicans were going to finally take it over. And so We won. Republican effort was successful, uh, Republican governor, Republican legislature, the whole deal. And I got bit by the political bug. I was like, man, this is fun. A lot of the competitive aspects I liked yeah, about yeah. basketball and stuff, you know, let's let's get it. And it was like, you felt like you're kind of fighting for, for yeah. something that you believe in. You right. know? And so I know I wanted to go back and get my degree, went to, to Bama. Uh, and while I was there, realized that there was a void in the marketplace. And this would be surprising for some people in Alabama. There was not a conservative leaning news outlet. Really? Uh, it was very similar to national media. Huh. And so I started a blog that was like, number one, all these relationships that I've built through this campaign. I'm going to give behind the scenes look of what's going on in Montgomery and our state capital. And then, 2 I'm going to give my conservative kind of perspective on these things. And it was meant to be uh, a way for me to get consulting business. I'm going to show right. that I'm in the know mm-hmm. and then someone's going to like hire me to do consulting stuff. And the first week that I launched the website, called it Yellowhammer Politics. Yellowhammer is the state bird of Alabama. Probably had like 25 hits. Right. 24 of them were my mom hitting refresh <laughs> on it. Thanks, mom. Um, and then the thing just exploded. Millions of readers every month, 30 radio stations, a daily Holy radio shit. show that I was holding, syndicating and hosting. Um, and it just blew blew up. And so I became the CEO of this media company kind of by accident while I'm sitting in a classroom at the University of Alabama. Um, and so it was like the the, re- the time I realized that I was like it had kind of become a thing. My professor, my state government professor is like, all right, today we're going to talk about buh, 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 buh. And Yellowhammer... Today reported that blah 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 blah. He has no idea that the person, the people that he is citing, right. like I'm sitting in his classroom. Holy, you know. So it was kind of wild how that that happened. But it was just like an unexpected thing. And so uh, 2015, I interviewed Donald Trump. Right. He's coming to Alabama, and he's going to have this rally in Mobile, Alabama. And the reason he said he was going to do it there is because the Panhandle of Florida. Uh, Louisiana, South Louisiana and Alabama are going to converge on Mobile, Alabama, and it's going to be this big thing. And everybody at the time was like, I don't know if this is real. Like, he's kind of a gimmick. Like, what's it going to be? And so he comes on my show to promote that he's going to do this rally. And then 50,000 people show up. And it's like— 50,000 people. Go back and look at this—in a stadium in South Alabama— the Washington post said it was like a mix of a Leonard Skinner concert and like Talladega. It was like bonkers. And it was the first time that everybody was like, well, hold on just a second. Like, this might not be a gimmick. This is like real. Well, year or so goes by, get into 2016, Jeff Sessions, our state, you know, Senator from Alabama, uh, was a friend of mine. And, uh, he was like, Hey, the Trump team is really staffing up. And like, I think you should consider taking a leave of absence from Yellowhammer, go to Trump Tower, go like help them with the communications stuff up there, have this experience. Maybe the guy wins, maybe doesn't, but like you'll have this experience and you come right. back and run your company and whatever. Yeah, yeah. So I'm like, once in a lifetime experience, yeah. I'm going to go do it. Well, then we won. And uh, I'll be the first to admit I was as surprised as anybody. That, that we did. <laughs> and only because, like, even if you, like, feel, like, in your bones, like, something is happening here. Yeah, yeah. You're looking at every piece of empirical data, and it's like, every poll says we're getting smashed. Yeah. So, like, we, we must just be drinking our own Kool-Aid. There's right. no way that we're that this is, like, sure enough, he won. And so um, I got to know Trump really well uh, in that time period because I helped—any video he recorded, I would help record his— your really? Videos And do all the scripts yeah, yeah, yeah. for him and do all these different things. And so he's a TV guy, right? So, like, he's very particular about how he likes things. So I really learned he likes the camera from this side and not this that side. He likes the lighting to be this way and not that, that way. He likes to be against a white background, not a dark background. Like, all these little nuanced things. And so he could just walk in and knock just his stuff out. He knows yeah. I'm going to do it right for him. And, you know, so we got to know each other really well. So he offers me a job running messaging for the White House. And the only thing between my office and the Oval Office is the Roosevelt Room. And so I'm like, I'm a kid from South Alabama. Like, you know, I wasn't expecting to sell my company. I wasn't expecting any of this to happen. But, like, I have to take this opportunity. And the challenge was the White House counsel told me when January 20th comes and it's the inauguration day, uh, you have to have sold your company or you're not walking in the building. And so I had like to fight, like sell my company as fast as I could, like literally close the deal on January 19th, like sold the company just in time to get to come in. And so for the next year and a half, ran messaging for the White House, which was leading kind of the communications messaging for all our major initiatives, the overhaul of the tax code, confirmations of all our, our cabinet secretaries going through the Senate, uh, any crisis situation that may have been going up, going on that day. You mean every day? Uh, every day. <laughs> <laughs> the tweets, the, you know, the tweets, whatever it may be. And uh, just had an extraordinary experience, man. Like, there's nothing like working in the White House by sheer virtue of the fact of every single person that comes in there is at the top of their field. Yeah. So, like, if you're meeting with a foreign leader... It's the king, the prime minister, or yeah, the president. Yeah, yeah. If you're meeting with business leaders, it's, it's CEOs of yeah, the biggest yeah. corporations in the world. And right. so like to see the way that people uh, negotiate and run meetings and right. interact with each other at that level, uh, I just don't know if there's an environment in the world that you would be able to see it like that. So
0: it was just like yeah, so what's, cool what's in so many ways. What's that like when you, when you walk in— because you, the first time you walk into the White House, like really go into the White House and then when you first go into the Oval Office,
3: mm-hmm.
0: what 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 what's that like?
3: Yeah, man. So my apartment, I literally Googled. I'd I'd never been, I mean, I've been to DC, but I'd never like really gone. So I like Googled apartment close to the White House right. and got it without even looking at it. And I got there and it like looked a lot bigger in the pictures than it was in real <laughs> life. But my apartment's on the east side of the White House, like one block away. Right. So I would walk in the east wing right. every, every day. And I repeated this every time cognizant of, like, I'm only going to get to do this so many times. Yeah. So I know when I walk through the east wing, I'm walking over the nuclear, the, the bunker yeah. down there. Um, and I'm walking past the family theater that we watched King Kong and La La Land with the president like all these movies in there you walk uh down the ground floor of the of the residence and you see all these photos of uh, the first ladies come through there. Right. like the, They have all the first ladies' portraits. And Trump used to love to point out Hillary Clinton's portrait because he, she thought she was going to be president, but she never was. <laughs> so this is as close as <laughs> she'll ever be. So she would, would, would do the whole thing there. And you walk past the diplomatic reception room and you think about all the foreign leaders who have walked in that and all the history that has happened in that room or the map room right there where uh, yeah. in World War II they had literally laid out the globe, like the maps of how they're moving the different pieces, the things that have happened there. And then you walk out onto the West Colonnade right by the Rose Garden, and it's the, the columns, the white columns yeah. that you see in all these pictures, and you think about, you know, this is where Reagan walked down every single morning to work holding right. the briefing books from the Cold War, or JFK walked in here with his kids every single morning, like all the things that have happened here, and then you bend a corner of the Rose Garden and you walk into the Oval Office there, and it is so disorienting because it's uh, the light's different in there, man. Like, there's no shadows. Like, the way that they have the lights done, the way that it hits, like, it's from all different angles. There are, like, no shadows in the room. Because, and it's of, this, the, because of the photography? Or I don't think it, there's a reason. Oh, per right. se- Maybe there is, but it's yeah. just, like, the way that it's lit mm-hmm. is different from the rest of the building. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's a spherical, it's yeah. oval-shaped room, so there's no corners, you know, yeah. to hide in. Uh, and then you look at the 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 Resolute desk that was a gift to the United States from the HMS Resolute that the British gave us that yeah. so many presidents have sat behind. You can't sit there without feeling the weight of history that has happened there and, like, the respect that you have to have for this ain't normal. Right. And this is a once-in-a-lifetime maybe unique experience that you're going to have that you better savor every single moment of it. And so— um, the the West Wing, I mean the the Oval Office is like it's an intoxicating environment because you just never get used to it. You never get you that's never normal right. to walk into to that room. So I, just You can't I can't even explain it. can't even explain it. It's just like so cool. But honestly, the rest of the White House is sort of a dump. Like I I don't even mean that. Like I mean it's kind yeah. of pejorative, right? But yeah, like yeah. it's an office building. Yeah. That is open 24-7 and is constant traffic and constant things going on. So when we first got there before the renovations had happened, it was dingy carpet that had been last for the last eight years. And it's just like kind of kind of crappy ar- office right. furniture and all that. So like Trump actually took a personal interest in the renovation, picked the wallpaper, picked the yeah, carpet, yeah. picked the things like that. And so after the renovations, it was much nicer. But it's really just more of a— of an office building right. where we're all cramped. I mean, that's the other thing is like small, right? You think like you think of the White House, A 1000 people work there. Well, like, yeah, but they're all next door. Yeah. At the in the Eisenhower building yeah. right next door in the west wing on the main floor where we were, it's the president, Jared Kushner, Steve Bannon, Rice priests chief of staff, vice president, national security advisor, uh press secretary, our little comms team, and that's it on the main floor of the White House. Right. So it's like a very small, very very small space. People watch the West Wing TV show and get a total misconception of like what it's like. Uh, yeah, in what's, there.
0: What what's that like? Is there is it is it accurate? Like I've seen. No, it, no, no, it's
4: not. not. it's yeah. it, it's not. Just just it's just the it, scale wise. Yeah, like yeah. it
3: would be hard to shoot a TV show in there because you'd be like be it's tiny. like me and
0: you and the, this would be a palatial office right. in the West Wing. I, I've thought about that a lot because of when it was built and the original architecture and obviously like based on the renovations I mean if you think about it what what Truman was the the Truman administration was the last really big renovation mm-hmm. right because that's when they they essentially deconstructed and constructed the interior right, right. and that was shit that was Nineteen what forty six? So that was nineteen fifty. Yeah. It's been a quarter, right? three but, quarters
3: of a century ago. Yeah. So
0: I mean, just just architecture in general in America has changed, yep. like room and and there's only so much room you can because they didn't change the exterior. They they re, they tore right. down the interior and then rebuilt the interior in the nineteen fifties. So mm-hmm. everything's smaller. If you go to a, yeah. a house from the nineteen fifties, you go into a room and you're like, this, how? How am I gonna put two kids in this thing, yeah, right? It's totally. like a bunk bed, and there's totally. like a tiny little dresser, and you're like, I, I, I'm not gonna be able yeah, to do right, this," right, right. you
3: know? Yeah, it's weird, man. And then like, then things will happen every now and then where like out of nowhere, there are uh, six guys in full combat kit, yeah, it, This suddenly burst in because like some jackleg has like ran over a barricade yeah, outside, right. and like everybody get down to the, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So yeah. it's like ah, and you know, then you know we get there and it's like, I have a I have a blue badge which means that you can yeah. go on the West Wing, you can right. go wherever, as opposed to a green bag, you have to have an escort, whatever. And uh, and then I was given a pen that was like for when we're traveling, a hard pen that when you're traveling that the Secret Service can identify, okay, this is somebody that's in the president's right. bubble. Circle. And so when I get there, the first time I walk in, I'm like asking random uniformed Secret Service people, like, am I allowed to go in this <laughs> room? <laughs> you just don't I don't want to mess yeah, up. Yeah. Like, I don't know. And finally somebody was like, you have a blue badge, you can go anywhere you want to. Okay, you don't have to ask to go in this building. You know, yeah. whatever. And so uh, Trump starts noticing people's badges. You've got a blue badge, but like yours has a yellow stripe on it. Yours has a red stripe on it. Yours doesn't have a stripe on it. You know, you've got a green badge. Like, what are up, what's up with the with the badges? And I don't know if this is like. All the only reason for this, but it has something to do with like evacuation protocol. Right. So basically, if you're in a certain group of people, you've got this, and like right. you're the ones gonna go on Marine One with the president if crap right, hits the right. fan, or you're gonna like whatever. And he realizes that I don't have one. And so now he thinks it's hilarious and brings it up constantly that like, Guys, if it if something happens, Cliff's dead.
4: <laughs> you know, like he's a, he's
2: not he's not coming.
3: He's not coming if something like really really happens. Uh, you know, and then like to come full circle, when I came back in the administration, we're skipping some stuff. But like as as Deputy D and I, yeah. Um, well, now I'm at this offsite like top secret location where if like really crap does hit the yeah. fan, where we set up a functioning government outside of D.C. and I'm like. I get to come
0: now. Baby, <laughs> to call the president and say, now you yeah, now I'll be there, but don't worry. It's gonna be great. <laughs> Have you gone did you go to Camp David?
3: Uh yes, but like I didn't spend any time no. there. Cause cause the, the way they do like the press stuff is like away from the actual R- camp. Right, right. Uh, so I didn't really get to go down. I mean, that's that would be that's like a bucket list thing that I just never really yeah. checked to get to hang out there much. But uh, I've heard you know, Trump's not really a An outdoorsy guy, right? So, like Camp David.
4: Yeah, Yeah.
3: I think junior. There were some people who loved Camp David, and some people Mm -hmm. who were just like, "Well, I'm gonna check that box because it's a cool, you know, but it's not my not my
0: jam, really." What? So, out of like the years that, or I should say, the months that you were there, like some of the most interesting people that you actually came into contact outside of the president, and of course, because I think you know that that one would be obvious but outside of that like wh- who are the people that you're like that that person is fascinating like, oh my god i can't believe this happened for like, sure
3: uh elon musk
0: oh yeah so yeah, we're yeah. having
3: a we're having a meeting in the cabinet room about infrastructure right and the president has brought in all of these businessmen yeah. who have like some kind of like even tangentially some something to do with like infrastructure so you've got like the guys that build the best airports in the world and the guys who, who, who like build the interstate highway system and all all these different, different people. And then there's Elon. And so the way that he would usually run these meetings is he kind of go around the room and like, let everybody kind of say, what is your perspective on, like, whatever this topic yeah. is that we're talking about? And so you got guys talking about, like, Mr. President, uh, if we could, you know, our, our airports are, are just a disaster compared to so many other countries out there now. And Trump would be like, well, what can we do with LaGuardia? Because it is a dump. Like, can we fix LaGuardia? Or like, you very know, true. Which is true. Yeah. Um, so then we go around the room to all these—they're saying all these things you would expect. Highways, yeah. bridges, roads, airports, ports, whatever. He gets to Elon, and Elon says, Um, Mr. President, I'm uh, I'm in the process of building a tunnel that would get you from New York City to Washington, D.C. in 29 minutes. And uh, and Trump's just like, Oh, you know, this guy's talking about bridges. This guy's talking, he comes and talks about tunnels, <laughs> you know, it's like, so he's like, everybody's kind of taken aback by like a tunnel, like what's tunnel? going and you know, so Elon's got the boring company that yeah, is like yeah. this the yeah. hyperloop tunnels yeah. and all this kind of like really cool interesting technology and and Trump basically goes um that sounds great Elon do it and so like
4: <laughs> so at the time
3: what? like Elon's problem was uh the jurisdiction for who's like the regulatory yeah. authority i've got a tunnel under cities and counties yeah, and all right. so like who has the authority to tell me you can do this. And so when the president's like, that sounds great, Elon, just do it. Um, you know, Elon and his guy are like, we walked out. He's like, did we just get approval to build a tunnel from, from you know, whatever? Hey, does
0: he have the power? Yeah, we have no idea. We have no
3: idea. But uh, Elon was just impressive because of the, that was an encapsulation of, normal people, even very successful people are talking about certain things and thinking about certain things. And Eli's just like over here somewhere, like just completely different universe of thought. Uh, and and it was, it was, that was really cool to see. Um, you know, Tim Cook, because you're sitting there with the guy who runs the largest company in the world. Um, uh, met Jeff Bezos outside the situation room. That was interest interesting because it's like well at the time there's the richest person yeah. on the planet yeah you know so that's kind of kind of interesting and he's
0: jacked now yeah he he's wasn't like, quite he wasn't jacked <laughs> at,
3: the, at the time <laughs> I could still freaking whoop him at the time I don't know now a freaking guy's been on on some serious you know, uh, I don't know I, whatever I,
0: whatever whatever he's on yeah. You know, I mean, both him and Elon, like, he's, he's like, Elon's like grown back hair. Right. And <laughs> Bezos is getting jacked. And yeah. you're like, okay, I don't know what those billionaires Man. are on, but I mean, I hey. I want some. Yeah, whatever yeah, whatever is. they Let got. Me know. Like, Let like us may, in on the secret. Yeah, you know, huh? maybe it's like some secret DNA juice they're like, <laughs> juice. <laughs> I, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I'll tell you, the, the
3: foreign leaders who stick out to me were um, Benjamin Netanyahu. Oh, yeah. Uh, because you just until you've been to Israel and see what it's like and, and you see the challenges that they're facing, that they're in this neighborhood where they're like, everyone wants to push them into the sea and, and, and just like what it must be to live the life that he has to live. Right. Uh, and, and deal with that type of pressure where like Iran, for instance, is an existential threat to your entire existence and your people's entire existence. Like it was cool to see, you know, somebody who's done that. And, um, I'll tell you, King Abdullah of Jordan, Mm -hmm. incredibly impressive, incredibly impressive. And here's a guy who kind of dealt a bad hand in the Middle East in terms of natural resources. They don't have oil. They don't have, you know, all they have. He would say, you know, we've got human capital. That's what we've got to offer. They've also absorbed just millions of people from the Syrian Mm -hmm. uh, conflict into their country. And having to navigate that i mean you think the immigration problem in the united states is bad and people are ticked off about people taking their jobs imagine if like a quarter of the people in the whole country were immigrants and refugees who had come in by no fault of their own but nonetheless are like taking jobs under the table trying to provide for their family and you know so tons of challenges that he had to deal with and just watching him have a command of those issues and uh and interact with the president of the United States who, you know, let's be honest, like there's levels to everything, right? The president of the United States is like, our country is still the power. Yeah. And and to see him come in and like advocate for his people and his, yeah, you know, I just had a lot of respect for the way he handled himself, the dignity and the way that he, that he conducted himself. Like he really stuck out as somebody of all the foreign leaders that I met that was very impressive.
0: I've heard that they have a kind of a tradition of, one, cooperating and working with the United States mm-hmm. in a very, very professionally dignified Big time. way. Big yeah. yeah. I mean, King Hussein uh, w- was very well known for that. Like, I, I spent a lot of time with this old school case officer that, that worked with King Hussein. And <clears throat> I was, I, I love this story, cause he told me years ago. And um, this this guy, John McGaffin, who who was the former, uh He's the former director, the deputy director of the agency. Really good guy, old school case officer, and he would he he was working with King Hussein for for years. So obviously, like you know, the CIA and the King, like he wasn't an asset. He was working with them. Sure. And um, he was telling me the story about how he was like he would he was coming home, and his wife was sitting there in the apartment, and there's like the, the in, in Jordan, and there's like this aroma, like she's cooking, but she's just reading on the couch, and uh, he <laughs> walked in, and Ken Hussein is like, cooking dinner in his house, <laughs> he's like, I'm coming over to cook you guys <laughs> right, dinner, he's right, right. <laughs> right. <So it's>, like, <laughs> cooking dinner for the family, oh, and amazing. he's like, this is so fucking weird yeah you're right, you right, know? Right, right he's like oh john how are you like i showed myself in i'm just cooking everybody <laughs> take, take the day off you know i'm like
4: what I like, yeah. it's
0: awesome I have,
3: a, I have a friend i won't say his name i have a buddy who um uh who went to meet with king abdullah yeah uh they're in amman and uh they get out of the car and he had brought his kids with him And one of his, you know, they obviously prep the kids on how do you comport yourself when you're interacting with a king, and how do you even address him, and how do you whatever. And so, uh, one of the kids gets out of the vehicle and says, um, "Hello, Your Majesty. My name is X." And it was not the king; it was somebody who is like had just come to let him out of the car. And the king was like, "I'm, I'm over here; <laughs> like it's me." But like to have the humility to be like, "I'm not offended by that; like hey, yeah. hey, it's me." You know, why would you know who I am? Like, great to see you; like, welcome. So that that's a lot of cool stories about the Jordanians, and they have been an amazing security partner were, for us yeah. in that region, uh, in in some really really significant significant ways. He
0: was he was in charge of the Jordanian commandos, so he was like. Uh, no shit soldier too mm-hmm. for quite a while. And he was very well respected among the the special forces guys that I knew because he was a little bit younger, you know, back in the day. He was like right around his Harley and he's like very Western. I believe he actually didn't he go to school here too. I think he did the exchange, the special forces exchange. I think mm-hmm. he actually came through that. I have this weird story. I was I was going through the Q course with this George and and um it, it, really interesting guy. We we became you know, decent friends, but we were having this conversation about, it was like, well, was just cultural differences. It's like, well, you know, if your sister were to have premarital sex, what would happen? He's like, oh, we would stone her to death. And I was like, what? <laughs> was your sister? And he's like, oh yeah, or cut her head off. I don't know. I, I'd spend some time in like <laughs> oh, a gentleman's present, you know, like play ping pong all day. And like, you know, I'd go out to work and then come back. It's no big deal. And I'm like, it's no big deal. Oh my God. Are you kidding me? Like, why do you care, can't, can't, man? That's super weird. Why do you care? That. He's yeah. like, so he's like, but he was just like, just not like talking about No, oh, yeah, Of course like, I would. Of course I, we would. Of course we would. Do don't hurt it. Not it's deal. not a big deal. I'm like, whoa,
3: know, man. man. Sounds like a big deal. Yeah, it sounds like a huge <laughs> deal.
0: Like, what the hell? And I, uh, He's like, oh no, it's you know, it's normal. It's normal. I'm like, oh, not normal, dude. That would never happen here. Like, I don't care who my sister does. Like, she's got her own life to live. He's yeah. like, oh, this is why you Westerners are so messed up. You know, this is why you, you can't. You know, that's and why, why like, we're messed up. That's why we're messed up. Okay, I'm like, fair enough. One, like, you're just gonna throw rocks at your sister <laughs> that you grew up with. It's so weird wow. to me, man. Yeah, and uh, I, I obviously I spend a ton of time in the Middle East. Was, it's around this time of year I always think of. Um, I spent Christmas with, uh, uh, Talibanis, which, you know, obviously he was the president of Iraq for, you know, for several years and, uh, every, for like two Christmases in a row I was with the Talibani's. and Haro Talabani was his wife. And then president Talbani'd be eating Christmas dinner with them. And, uh, and then one year I was with the Barzanis and the two main families, from, you know, Kurdish descent within Iraq that have like the majority of, I would say that the, the power, the Barzanis and the Talibanis. And I was fortunate enough every year to either be with the Talibanis or the Barzanis and. Every year it was like such a great experience because they're really wonderful people. Hospitality super over the top. Yeah, yeah, over the top. I have this picture of sitting at the president's desk in uh Sulaimania with his like I'm wearing his glasses <laughs> 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 and I'm pretending to like sign a piece of right, legislation right, right. or something, you know. And uh and he was like he thought it was hilarious. He's like, yeah because he's you know, he's good, good humor guy. I think yeah. and you know, these soldiers because of Barzanis and the Talibanis, they were they were commanders and soldiers so of course mm-hmm. they like they love being around soldiers yeah yeah and he would always complain about the case officers like these fucking case officers man whereas like the delta force <laughs> guys or whoever we were with they're like i just like like to prefer to hang out with you guys yeah yeah and uh, i i there are aspects of that that i miss but i'm never going to get sick of being home for for christmas like oh, yeah. being here oh yeah oh man yeah like you well, never going to get sick of it I, were you at the were you Working for the White House, during oh, yeah. a, obviously. Oh yeah, couple. What's that? A couple like? of Christmases, yeah. Because um, they have like this the giant like, Christmas party, right, for so all the, the VIPs and staff, and so it's so it's
3: interesting. By the way, I'm about to take my, your first. I'm going to take my first take ever sip off. of coffee. Take I the, lid, take the off. lid off. Yeah, take okay. the lid
0: off because it's Let nice and make cool. Make sure note. that I do this right. Just a sip. I
3: don't
0: there you go. go. Don't. So
4: don't just, go crazy. Just sip. Just
0: a, yeah, just a sip. It's A big moment. I know it's a huge moment. Feels right.
3: <laughs> Feels right that it happened <laughs> he didn't here. Spit it out. It Feels right spit that it out. happened here. Yeah. Okay, no, we'll come good. back to why it's I've cool never back. drank coffee before. Yeah. That was good, man. It's not bad. Yeah, I'm in. Okay, I'm good. In. Okay, I'm on All board.
4: Right. Let me taste it.
3: So, uh, Christmas at the White House. Um, so the Christmas party. This is like the the iconic. This
0: is the White I- most, House one of the most iconic Christmas, Christmas parties ever.
3: But here's what here's what no one really realizes. Yeah. There are like thirty. What? Because, think about it, how many people could possibly oh, fit in there yeah, for a yeah, single yeah. party? So you have, like, a staff party, you have a party. So there's a bunch of them. Right. And the president, when he gets there, I mean, how would anybody know that there are 87 Christmas parties? at the? So the president yeah. gets there and he's like, so what's up with the Christmas party? What am I going to do? He thinks, I'm going to say a few words. I'm going to, like, you yeah, know yeah. whatever, say hey to everybody. Right. I'm going to go back upstairs to my bedroom and chill, and yeah. I don't have to... He doesn't realize, like, not only does he have to take photos for a Christmas party, he has to take individual photos for 30 Christmas parties. And so he stood there for hours, hours Holy and shit. hours taking
0: individual,
3: individual pictures with everybody yeah. who came or, you know, a couple of people, if it's right. a couple, you know, whatever. And he was, I mean, as any normal person would be, had had all he could possibly stand of taking yeah. pictures but like he did it and also this is the thing about trump that even his haters should understand and like they they don't have an appreciation you cannot be in the room with the guy and not be attracted to like his magnetism right and his like he is an unbelievable host so every single person like my wife and i come through the line he's already taken hours and hours of photos we weren't even probably supposed to be in the line but it was just like <laughs> hey, let's just go grab a picture with the president yeah, real quick yeah. like whatever and the president had never met my wife before. And he goes, look at her. He said, Cliff, I always knew there was a reason I respected you. <laughs> you know, he does this whole thing to make her feel like that, like, yeah. man, she's beautiful, yeah, she's awesome, yeah. like, she's great. Your husband's awesome. He's great. He does such a great job here. He, like, turned it on for that one because he knew that that moment was, like, yeah. special for my family, that he's going to meet my wife and, like, whatever. Um, but it's a miserable experience for him. Oh, yeah. Miserable. Now, for the rest of us, uh, it's like you're mingling like on the state floor of the White House. It's uh, state dining room, which used to be Thomas Jefferson's office. Right. Uh, it's uh, red room, blue room, green room. East Room, which is the big banquet room where all the food is in there, and then the Grand Hall. When you first come in, it's got the piano and the band is in there playing, and the decorations are just unbelievable. I mean, it's a really magical, like really special thing for anybody that gets to go. Oh, yeah. It meets the the hype. My biggest memory of Christmas time at the White House, though, was um, we're working in twenty. Uh, 18 or no, excuse me, 2017, we're trying to pass the largest overhaul of the tax code, biggest tax cut in mm-hmm. a generation. Yep. And it's a contentious debate. We're trying to wrangle the votes, like whatever. And the president is getting ready to go out and give remarks in the grand foyer of the residents there. Uh, beautiful backdrop. It looks like he's in a winter wonderland. And my phone rings, and it's the head of legislative affairs, and he says, We've got a deal. The bill is going to pass. We need to give the president the chance to announce it before the Congress does because it's his bill, it's right. his victory. Don't let them beat us. Now, we've already got remarks done. The remarks are up in the teleprompter already. Like there are people he's bringing up, like families to talk about all these different things. And so he's going on in like three minutes. So I am on my phone pecking out changes to his remarks and dictating them to the person with the teleprompter. And I'm like marking things out on his remarks on a sheet of paper here, uh, trying to show him what he's going to say. So the president walks in and he says, uh, and I did this like dozens of times. I would like prep him for, you know, if you give a bunch of remarks every day, you need to, when you walk in, okay, who is this group? What's this about? Tell me what I'm doing. What's the run of show? So I'm walking him through everything, but I say, we got a deal on the tax bill. I actually think you should announce that we have got a deal and it's going to pass. And so the president's jacked. Let's do it. Change the remarks. I've got the scribbled out, you know, copy of the remarks, whatever. Change it in the teleprompter. The teleprompter, people are losing their freaking minds. The staff secretary, which is like everything the president says has to go through the staff secretary to be vetted. And all. This. the staff secretary is losing his mind. Like, how can we change the remarks at the last minute? Like, I'm like, bro, it's Trump. Like, he's going to go out there and say what he's going to say <laughs> anyway. Like, why are we going to be surprised? So the president goes out and I am standing just off the side behind a giant Christmas tree. You can't see me. And the president says, you know, we've got a deal. We're going to pass this bill. And it was one of the few moments in the White House that, like, time stopped. And it was just like, what was I doing a year ago? And now, like, I was a part of, like, this incredible thing, this giant tax cut that's going to affect everybody all over the country, all these amazing things, and watching it happen. And the front page of the New York Times, even the the New York Times— amazing picture of Donald Trump tax cuts for Christmas. And and uh, so he loved this cover, of The New York Times. So right before it's Christmas Day, the president is gonna leave. He's gonna go to Mar-a-Lago mm-hmm. for Christmas. And I get to my desk, and on my desk is the New York Times headline, and it says, great job, Cliff, Donald Trump signature nice. on it. And I was like, That's, I could leave right now and be done and never come back. And this was like – but even like – that, this is the thing don't, people don't get about Trump. Even the thoughtfulness to be like yeah. – Cliff and a few other people like, like worked really hard on right. this, and like this is our win. And, yes, I'm the one that gets to go up here and be like, boom. But, like, I'm going to think enough that I'm going to, like, write a note on this newspaper and leave it on his desk for him. That's Stuff wild. like that is why, like, you know, Trump's done things that I've disagreed with over time. But, like, on a personal level, I mean, crap, the guy sued me. We can get into that, too. Like, like, <laughs> like we've been, we've, like, had, but, like, I, I will always have an affection for him, like, personally, because I've seen it up close and personal. I've experienced All the good, all the bad aspects of his personality. He's experienced the good good and bad of my personality. And like, you know, not not to in any way compare it to like the camaraderie that you guys have like out on the battlefield. But like, you know, bonds are born in tough times that are different than just like, well, I'm friends with them, yeah. you know? So I'll always have like a personal affection. Banging for out for that.
0: spreadsheets together. It's, <laughs> yes. it's different. It's, it's totally different. It's so different. different. Bro. It's yeah, so different. It's you know so what I'm different. talking about. I the do. The spreadsheets. Yeah, so you wrote a book, mm-hmm. which I wanted to touch on a little bit. So when did the book come out? What was it? Three years ago?
3: 2019. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Okay, so three yeah. years ago.
3: Yeah, I mean, I found that there was a... A what was missing in the Trump story was the books that were written were either written by haters, haters, yeah, or uh, it would just say it, what it, sycophants, yeah, yeah, okay, or journalists, yep. who are relying on their sources, right? And so even if they're trying to get it right, they're relying on their source, and they 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 weren't really there. They're reporting on what happened, you know. So I was like, I was really there, yeah, and I want to tell the truth about like what it was like there. And like the good, bad, and, and ugly. And 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 that's not unique to Trump's White House. Like there's good, bad, and ugly. And sure. in ask somebody in my company right now, right. what's the good, bad, and there's going to be good, bad, and, and ugly. But my goal in it was that people would have their eyes open to what it was really like. And it wasn't anything like what they were being told, right. frankly, in a very positive, positive way. Right. Why does Trump operate the way he does? Let me help you understand his reasoning behind when he walks out and says, if North Korea doesn't get their act together, it's going to be fire and fury, the likes yeah, of I which am. the world has never seen. Whoa, why would you do that? Well, I take you behind the scenes of like why he did that. He had a right. pretty interesting justification for that. So that was my the spirit of what I was trying to do. Well, the name of the book is Team of Vipers, and it was based off of Team of rivals. Lincoln's team of rivals. Team of rivals. Team of vipers, one of the main challenges I found in the Trump administration, the Trump White House, is you had a lot of people who were out there self-servingly trying to do their thing and didn't really care what the president's agenda was. And I wanted to show... That dynamic, too, which is one of the negative aspects of it. It's like the staff environment was like a war in there against each other every day. And my one regret was I wanted to get the book to a point that it was kind of done and I could talk to him and tell him, this is what I'm doing. This is what it's about. This is what you can expect. And, like, I'm not trying to come. I'm not coming after you. Right. Well, it leaks like everything does that the book is coming out and it gave some of this these vipers if yeah, you will yeah. the ability to get in his ear and tell him like oh i think cliff's turned on you and he's mm-hmm. like going to come after you and like whatever and so trump i don't even blame him for this defensive and it's like somebody's going to punch me i'm going to yeah. punch them yeah, yeah. back and so you know he sued me uh he, you know it was really awkward
4: yeah. you know
3: he's like com- coming after me pu- publicly and tweeting things about me and all this kind of stuff and actually when he uh, tweeted about me for the first time, I was in a live TV interview.
0: with At The View or something? Uh, I was right? on, it was on CNN, oh, actually. Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
3: And so the woman who was interviewing me says, like, actually, the president's just tweeted about you. <laughs> and so, like, you can imagine, <laughs> oh, you man. know, you, your body language, yeah, you're trying yeah. to just, like, oh, really? Well, what did he say? Oh, yeah, cool. What did he say? Yeah. <laughs> and so they put this tweet up there and it's like, you know, honestly, it's so hilarious in retrospect. Like, how can you laugh about it now? But it's like, you know, Cliff Sims. Basically, who is this guy? <laughs> yeah. He was a, he was a gopher <laughs> that uh, you know pretends to know something. Whatever. It's Like coming yeah, yeah, after yeah. me. Yeah. And um, and people thought I had like I knew that this was a possibility, but honestly, I, I I didn't prepare for it. Right. And like when when the lady asked me like, "What's your response to that?" The first thing that came to my mind, and this we've touched on this in this conversation already in some ways, is I said. Um, my identity is not wrapped up in what Donald Trump or anyone says about me. My identity is is who I am in Christ, and right, my right. faith. And like, these are the, this is where I find my identity and not in this. So it's like, in retrospect, I'm glad I answered the question that way. But if I'm being honest, like, that hurt, man. Like, yeah. um, because of all the stuff we just talked about, yeah. this bond that I felt yeah. like we had. But in retrospect, if I read that tweet, his heart wasn't really in it. Yeah. You know, when he really wants to rip somebody's face off, he, there's a... He's he, pretty good at uh, it. Yeah, he's a master. Yeah, And yeah. I feel like he was still... Even though he thought I was, like, must be trying to attack him or something, it, right. well, he wasn't all the way there. Well, basically, he re- kind of realizes... You know, as time goes on, like, well, he's not attacking me on television. Right. This book actually wasn't that bad for me. And he actually, I won't say the name, someone internally who said something about me. And he said, actually, it seems like the book was bad for you.
4: <laughs> you know. So I think he kind
3: of changed his perspective on it. And we were able to patch things up. And and I came back and, uh, and ran speech writing for the Republican National Convention for him. Uh, And then came back as deputy DNI for him. But the first time that I saw him after the lawsuit was uh, around the Republican National Convention. Uh, It had been a huge success. It was like a really, really great thing. And he wanted to bring the team into the Oval Office to say thank you. And so I come in and he stops and he goes, there he is.
4: (laughs) <laughs> he said, "Listen," he said,
3: "I sued his ass off,
4: <laughs> and we brought him back because we always loved him,
3: like he just like the perfect Trump-like crescendo to the whole to the whole thing. So it was awesome, man. I I appreciate the opportunity to come back and and work for him again, and and have the experience at at, at DNI was a whole nother That's universe crazy. of things. Um, and the way that happened was when I was in the White House. Was I, was Flint
0: there before?"
3: Oh, you are talking about Ratcliffe? Yeah, sorry, Ratcliffe. The DNI. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that's kind of how it happened. I helped run uh, Ratcliffe's confirmation. Oh, um, okay, okay. And so gotcha. we got yeah, close, yeah. And, and through that, and and um, so he wanted me to to come in, and uh, so another whole whole other universe. Which honestly, like as amazing as the White House experience was, this was so much more fun because. At some point, you have a difficult time finding meaning in arguing with with a Dodo reporter sure. over a tweet. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and then like that yeah. consumed a lot of my day in the White House is arguing with Dodo reporters and right. dealing with whatever crisis, you know, if you want to call it that, that had been manufactured. Yeah, manufactured that
0: crisis, right?
3: And it just, you know, but when you're at DNI, it just feels meaningful, and you know, I think, you know, this is where we think about the service of it. It's like you know, you don't have to wonder, does this matter no. or not? You know, because it's the, the issues are life and death at times and and the safety and security of our of our country. And like, you know, so it was a whole nother universe of just like finding meaning in my work. I love getting up to work every morning. John Ratcliffe is a freaking great American who was like doing the right thing in that job every single day. Right. And that meant both people fixate on this like, you're supposed to tell truth to power, and we need our intelligence people to go in there to tell the president what he needs to hear. And like, well, obviously, yes, we need to tell the truth. Like, let's not sugarcoat the intelligence. Let's sure. not have an Iraq WMD situation. Yeah, let's yeah. have dissenting views. Right. Let's have a, you know, let's tell the truth about these things. But sometimes that meant inside the intelligence community, being, being willing to speak truth to power right. and being willing to say, well, hold on just a second here. Um, I mean, a great example of, of this is like in 2020, there's been so much written, so much conversation about influence or interference in American elections. Yeah. The Chinese sought to influence the 2020 presidential election. Oh, yeah. Okay. And there was a an intelligence community assessment that came out that gives the impression that there is only this one lonely guy the national intelligence officer for cyber, who thinks that the Chinese tried to influence the election. One lonely guy out here on an island. Right. The rest of us know that they didn't try to do anything but this one guy. And the fact of the matter is there were a lot of people who looked at the intelligence of what was going on and, and came to a different conclusion, and they were bullied mm. into submission. Right. And so you have the—, the not to get down in the weeds, but the intelligence community ombudsman, which is the guy who basically is the umpire that decides, are we abiding by all our standards? If there's a disagreement over the analysis, he helps referee those disputes. Let's make sure that all the information is getting here. Like let's, let's make sure we're doing this right. Found that CIA management among others had bullied people into not taking that position and that certain People inside the intelligence community said, um, I don't want to say certain things about China because the president will abuse, will take this piece of information and use it to his political advantage. It will basically it will help Trump. Mm. This isn't me saying this. Yeah, yeah. This isn't classified right, stuff. Right. This is the ombudsman's report, which is available to the public that has gotten next to zero mm. coverage because that's really uncomfortable for us to talk about, uh, talk about that. So, you know, I had a lot of respect for Ratcliffe, both because he did a great job in interfacing with the president and, and other senior policymakers on this stuff, but also the way he was willing to, he wrote a letter and attached it to the intelligence community assessment saying, I support this, the national intelligence officer for cyber and his willingness to stand up and tell the, the truth about what's going on. Basically he had this guy's back who right. was risking career suicide right. to say what he was saying. So Ratcliffe is a is a great a great man.
0: What do you think? Um, you know, shifting gears a, a tiny bit into Twitter. Um, so with the last few days, obviously in the disclosure of mm-hmm. how yeah. Twitter was directly utilized by members of the DNC specifically to delete messages. Have you gone down the? Have you have you done any research on I, this? I like, have. I have. It, it's kind of an like my uh, my opinion and then I'll get into like facts with with somebody that's much smarter is so we all knew this was happening mm-hmm. right so this all this did was just validate what we already it, it wasn't even much of a speculation yeah. it, it was we all knew this was happening yeah. well, we just we couldn't could, have like we just didn't have documented totally proof. well and plus when
3: you could see that your twitter you could see your twitter analytics yeah and suddenly you went from getting ten thousand retweets per to tweet to one. 1400 <laughs> yeah. retweets. you know that. you know i didn't change yeah. something is, yeah so yeah and and i think we're going to learn a lot more about what was going on but yeah, yeah you're right it confirmed what we all saw with our own two eyes was right. happening
0: right And what do you think the direct impact of that, to the next election will be, if any? Do you think that, one, do you think you'll have more conservatives come back to Twitter as a platform? Uh, I think you've already have. I think I've already seen like a lot, uh, a lot of conservatives said, oh, you know what? It might be a safe place for me to play now versus Mm -hmm. like now everything else is, and we see it. Don and I were talking about it uh, when he was out here. He was, you know, we were talking about Instagram, for instance, where it's like, You know, you'll go through a month where you get like a thousand likes or something like that on something, and then the next then something happens and then you have eighty thousand or whatever they unlock, you complain, you hit the right button somewhere, and then everybody's like, Oh my gosh. Yeah. Do you think that there do you think that there's any way that conservatives will have an equal playing field on Silicon Valley platforms.
3: So here's a uh, maybe a, a strange roundabout way to answer this question. Senator Tom Cotton this past week was uh, sitting in a Senate committee and the CEO of, I believe it was Kroger, the grocery chain, I'm yeah. trying to remember who it was, was basically coming before the Senate committee in hopes that they're going to get uh, approval for this m- giant merger yep. that they're yep. doing. And the Democrats are trying to block the merger. Right. And so here comes the CEO hat in hand and Tom Cotton says, I find it interesting that you come before me now after all this stuff that you've done in your company to suppress conservative voices, to buy into this kind of woke agenda to all these different things. And now you expect Republicans after you suppress the views of all of our voters, to save you for this. And he basically said, I'm sorry that this is happening to you. I wish you the best of luck. (laughs) And I thought that is actually an interesting, possibly an interesting kind of foreshadowing to the day when these tech platforms come before Congress and people are trying to take away their protection, which has been... Uh, that we yeah. are a platform, yeah. we're not going to censor, we don't We don't produce content, right, we're right. just a pra- platform of views, yeah. so we cannot be held responsible for the views right, that are expressed right. on our pa- platform. And you're a publisher when you start suppressing one side or the other, mm-hmm. deleting one side or the other, right. censoring one side or the other. And the day will likely come when even the Democrats are kind of like, you know, they're not, you know, even they have tried to kind of rein in big tech, at, at some of them anyway. Sure. And they're going to look at Republicans and they're going to say, hey, uh, Republicans who believe in free markets, save us. And it would be my hope that Republicans would look back at them and say, a la Tom Cotton, I'm so sorry this is (laughs) happening to you. I wish you the best of luck. Because we spend a disproportionate amount of time concerning ourselves with foreign influence in american elections yeah so much of the russia russia russia
4: stuff yeah, yeah. if you
3: look at the actual nuts and bolts of their quote-unquote influence operation peanuts the win the reason putin is so thrilled with the whole thing is the media turned it into yeah a giant, so he loves looking like look how powerful um, i'm i'm so powerful i can undermine american the american republic right and so um It's the big tech platforms who have a much more meaningful ability to do this in a way that we don't even really see. Your algorithm, if you're Google, the display results that you show in Google results, your algorithms at Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, et cetera, that decide what content gets input and get put in front of a user and what content does not um, that is such a profound power over the spread of ideas. Mm-hmm. It has a much more meaningful impact I mean, if we can look at just you know the most well-known example of this being the Hunter Biden story, yeah. uh, where all these social media platforms decided we're going to censor this, and our justification is going to be under our quote unquote hacked material mm-hmm. policies even though there was no evidence to to say that it was hacked and actually uh, the director of national intelligence john ratcliffe i was there comes out at the time and says there is no evidence to suggest that this is a foreign influence operation or that mm-hmm. this is hacked material and they did it anyway 51 former intelligence community officials including mm-hmm. former cia directors yep. and deputy directors and all these senior said you know oh, this is a foreign intelligence operation, like politicized their credentials, which then gives these companies the cover to say, well, all these experts, all these intelligence experts are saying this is probably going to—this is Russian disinformation. We have to suppress it. They used it as a justification to support their political views, which is that they didn't want this story out there because they had picked a side. Mm -hmm. And so— It is my view, and I am a believer in the free market, but it is my view that this has become such a profound um, threat to free and open thought and communication, which is so foundational to our ability to have an informed electorate and who Mm -hmm. they're going to go and vote for, that we are going to have to intervene. And one of the things, and by we, I mean the government, is going to have to intervene. What that looks like, I'm not an expert in, in like that, but what I do know that, that I think Elon is bringing to the table here is a little bit tra- of transparency. First of all, I'm going to tell you the truth about these mm-hmm. things that have happened in the past, but now uh, I'm going to give you some options for how you're going to con- consume content. Uh, do you want an? Do you want no algorithm whatsoever, where right. you just see every every person that you follow, you see them in date order of when the tweet was posted, and we have no impact over what you see? You can select that option. Maybe there's another option where you do like the algorithm mm-hmm. that we do a pretty good job of putting content in front of you that you, like, you like. But you're going to be able to see that algorithm and see what it's doing. It's going to apply across the board to everybody. We're not going to censor one side or the other. Like. What Elon, the importance of what Elon is doing, I think, is not just Twitter. It's what it's going to force Mm. very uncomfortably for these other social media platforms to wrestle with. The fact that you're exactly right, Don's Instagram account will vary widely between. Hundreds of thousands of likes and a hundred likes. Yeah. I mean, it's like insane. It's insane. Clearly, you're putting the thumb on the scale here. It doesn't mm-hmm. take a rocket scientist to figure it out, but they right now uh, have the ability to hide behind. We don't get to see any of that stuff.
0: Yeah, we don't get to see it or, you know, uh, well, you know, good content gets shared. We just don't know. You know, it's the algorithm and it's like, yeah, we see it. We see it all the time. It's like even as, you know, you know anything gun-related at times oh, will get suppressed. Yeah. And then, you know, and we see it across the board. And we, we 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 constantly, in a lot of our companies like, like ours, we live in fear that these things are just going to get the switches, like, turned off. Totally. So, yeah. y- you know, you say something wrong. You do something wrong. There's no warning. It's just boosh. Tomorrow, uh, you wake mm. up, you're all out of bed, and then you lose access mm. to the customer. And... You know, I debate it internally a lot, even you know, from from myself, because I, there's there's a part of me that's that thinks, well, you know, these are companies, you know, they 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 have a public obligation, obviously, because they're publicly traded, and then they have the right to run their company the way they want. But then there's a tipping point. So I, this is kind of the way my debate goes internally, where when you become such an integral part of the way that we communicate as a country, you do have an ethical obligation to equal the, at least participate within the constitutional constructs of speech that's ethically similar, Mm -hmm. if not the same, Mm -hmm. as we participate in free speech as a country. If you're tipping the scale, so to speak. What you're doing is you're doing something outside of what we've defined as constitutionally or ethically correct. That to me, is it illegal? I don't know, it might Mm -hmm. be hard to prove. Is it immoral or unethical, unconstitutional? And when I say it goes against constitutional values, Mm -hmm. I think yes. I think that's where the debate comes in. Is it's more of a of a a philosophical debate in the context of is it right? And that's where I think it comes in. It's is it legal? Probably. Is it right? Is it okay? Mm -hmm. I don't think it is. Now you know you can debate it. As you and I, I, I often talk about this, which is, you know, free speech is not something that. You get to pick and choose and decide what is what is free and what isn't free. Mm-hmm. You actually have to take the good with the bad. It's kind of like a buffet. You can walk past the shit that you don't want to eat and you don't have to go, "Well, uh, these beets are on the buffet table. Yep. Yes, Looks I gotta, like I, I got to eat it. these beets." Yep. You know, you don't have to. Yeah. But there are things that we just have to take like and it, and it, mm-hmm. and it stinks. I well, I trust me when I say this. Like there's a lot of crazy shit on the internet, and there's a lot of crazy people saying a lot of crazy things. Mm-hmm. I don't agree with a ton of it, but free speech is free speech. 100%. percent. You
3: know, there's such a political realignment happening in the country right now that we're in the middle of, and there's a lot of components to that, but one of them is this belief in free speech used to be a core liberal
0: value. The ACLU That's has right. defended... The KKK, guys, yeah. like, And it, it, yep. I'm, I'm not defending one side or the other. I'm saying what they have done is they've yeah. said what this is is free. It's a free speech issue. That's right. That's right. And if we start moderating or muzzling mm-hmm. one side, that means that that does tip the scale in the favor mm-hmm. of control, and we're not in the favor of control.
3: Yep, yep. 100%. It's, it's now... Uh, become a, you know the right is yeah. the defenders of of free speech and I think the real test of it is like are you willing to defend speech that you disagree with mm-hmm. and that is another area where I feel like just socially in our country right now um, like you just said defending you don't agree with the KKK freaking screw the KKK they yeah. suck
0: they're, they're but, it's moronic yeah there's, there's no there's no substance to it in any in any way shape or form
3: but but the the answer to that used to be the best antidote to bad speech is more good speech. Let's have this debate, it, and the good ideas will win.
0: It's it goes back to math. It's just the difference between you know two plus two. If you start saying that two plus two, two doesn't equal four, you can also start saying that all speech is not created equal. Yep. Which in all reality, these are noises yep. that we're constructing in in uniform sequence in order to articulate electronic firing specifically from our gray matter mm-hmm. built on experience and or education, preferably the combination of both. But when we start limiting and constraining any idea, mm-hmm. that's when we live in a very dangerous world. Yeah. And when we live in a fascist state where we're just like yep. saying who can speak totally. and who can't. And that's the whole thing with, like I, I, I typically agree with in the context of like... I, we just talked about it. In the, like I have a company where I can say, "Hey, I, I don't I don't really want you to say those things in my company. You can leave. I can do that because we live in a free country and it's my company, and I can do that." As a country, when we start doing that, that's a mm-hmm. different circumstance. Yep. It's a different circumstance well, because it's dangerous.
3: The, totally. And and the the added challenge to that now is um, the First Amendment, obviously. Uh, all the Constitution is is sought to restrain what the government is Correct. able to do, yeah. but was but did not ever fathom a time when these giant tech companies would have right. so much power to well, the government's got a doesn't have to do it anymore. The government to send an email to the safety team over at Twitter mm-hmm. and shut down uh, an entire story that the overwhelming majority of people say would have affected their vote in a presidential election, okay? So like the government didn't force anyone to do that. So what are the implications now when we have these platforms that have this power that used to would have been only possible with the the government to say. And that's where things are getting really dicey now and and like all of these um you know, those of us who believe in the principles of, of free markets and liberty and the ability, to your point, that, that like, you own your company, you can do whatever you want with your company as long as it doesn't infringe on my rights. And I think that's the question is um, where does a company actually infringe on your rights? Right. And um, these they're so powerful that maybe yeah. they are. But, you know, part of the other problem, if we want to get to, like, the root, root, root of so many of these things is— um, Basic civics education in this country, oh yeah, dang near right. doesn't exist Does anymore. Yeah. And uh, and so now, when we're trying to have a national conversation about these issues, uh, if we can just say it very bluntly, we're having a national conversation with morons. Yeah, uh, about them. You 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 have,
0: like, you have a really good point, which is you you're trying to have a a conversation with people that don't understand that there are distinct differences between three branches of government, mm-hmm. like. And you don't even they, they can't clearly articulate the differences between them. So if you were to say what's the difference between the executive, and the legislative, they would say, I didn't know, no yeah. idea. Right. Right. So there's a there there's a context to the conversation that I don't think has anything to do with intelligence. It has everything to do with education and whether totally. or not you understand even the difference or how does you know the, the the construct of our republic even work from voting and representation and the difference between local and federal governments like like i've had these conversations and it's interesting because i've had conversations with people and they're like politics is boring i don't understand it it's stupid and by the way, I hate that president. <laughs> <And> <laughs> right, you're like, right. Okay,
4: dokey.
0: <laughs> dokey. I, I guess okay. Uh, so you hate it. You don't understand it, and that guy's an asshole yep. or whatever. And you're like, okay, um, like th- there's there's kind of just the 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 the, the rough education and just understanding the basics has to be there before we can even have it. Realistic mm-hmm. conversation with anyone.
3: I had a an extraordinary experience last week. You know, I went to public schools. My wife went to public schools. You know, big believer in public schools. And where we live, we got really good public schools. Like it would never cross my mind, really, uh, up until recently, that I would want to send our little boy to a, to a private school. Right. We got great public schools. Why would I? Why would I do that? Yeah. So uh, my wife wanted to to visit this this private school. And just to check it out, see what it's about. My son's in uh, pre-K right now, going to kindergarten next year. So we go check it out, and, and the principal's giving us a tour around the school. And we're just walking in and out of classrooms. So we're getting, like, a real-time snapshot of, like, what's happening in this classroom. And we walk into a fourth-grade class, and the teacher says, Someone tell me, why did Robert E. Lee fight for the South and not the North? You have my attention, ma'am. Yeah, like yeah. let's see yeah, yeah, what let's is the answer because I I know this argument and many others have been boiled down to a very small sound bite yep. of uh well obviously he was a racist awful terrible person and Horrible person. you know yep. wanted to enslave yep. the world you know whatever it would be and so I wanted to hear like well what's a fourth grader going to be able to say yeah and this this little kid ten year old little kid stands up and and says. General Lee was offered the command of the North, but he told them he could not raise a sword against his brothers from Virginia. And At the time, our national identity had not been fully established, and your state's identity was more about more a part of who you are than your national identity. And he could not bring himself to raise a sword against his home state of Virginia. And he went on to some other things, but I'm like sitting there like, take my money. Everyone here can have my, y'all got my money. I'm sending them here. There's no question. Like, just tell me what it costs. I don't even care. Take all my money because my gosh, how many adults could give an answer with, with they, nuance like that today, much less a 10 year old. They
0: wouldn't, the way that they would answer this is they would say, they they would say that, and they would, and then the response from the fourth grade would be, Neil Armstrong is a great TikToker. That's how they would respond to that. That's it. Wouldn't even make sense because they wouldn't even understand. Right, right. The Civil War, they'd be like, I think Neil Armstrong was a great <laughs> right. general in the Vietnam War. That's what they would say. <laughs> I I think in the as they were fighting the Vietnamese, right, right. Neil Armstrong. Was great, thank you, teacher. Yes. And then they would make another TikTok. Yes. Cliff, thanks, buddy. This I has appreciate been awesome. you, man. Really enjoyed like, it. We uh, we 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 burnt a couple hours here. Did man. we really? It. What yeah. are we looking at? Two hours, twenty minutes. Oh my gosh! Thanks, buddy. Enjoyed it. Thanks for first coming drink in. of coffee. It was a, it ever. Was a, it was an honor. Thanks, buddy. See you, man. See ya. That concludes today's training. Any questions? <laughs> Woo! Drum titties, boy!